Yo, what up, Dopey Nation? What up, Dave? This your boy, Firecracker, yeah. from ATL. Lil' songs. Welcome everybody to the Dopey Podcast. I got a little ayahuasca inside of a shot glass. But this the show about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Thugs, prescriptions, even praying mantis is bug shit. Tell Dave that he needs to clean up his attic. Even though he's busy trying to help clean up an attic. Did you get that? That was wordplay. I've been doing this since the first grade. Then I started doing drugs right before my birthday. It's worse to say a lie, so I tell the truth. And drop a free verse for Dopey up in the booth. Whether you're sipping juice or under a church roof. Or doing both and confused i hope that you don't lose find your way and find some time to pray even though i still get high i pray like five times a day and i hope one day i get it before god punches my ticket but if i didn't i hope you enjoy this little flow i just spit yeah don't be don't be don't be podcast they be asking how long will it last don't worry dave them haters gonna keep hating but we love you dog it's the fucking dopey nation don't be don't be don't be podcast they be asking how long can it last don't worry, Dave, them haters gon' keep hating, but we love you, dog. this the fucking dopey nation. Toodles, to to the rule, you know what I'm saying? Tiddly toodles, firecracker. <laughs> Before we get into the show, Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, I just want to tell you guys about Aloe Recovery Center. It's in Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. It has amenities like you wouldn't believe, including horseback riding, surfing, and the amazing sound bath meditations. But that's not the reason to go to Aloe, although I hear the sound bath meditation is pretty sick. The reason to go to Aloe is because uh, they treat addicts with respect. Bob Forrest and this guy, Evan Haynes, wanted to create a treatment center that, like, gave junkies their due, as opposed to all of the other horrible treatment centers that we've all been to where we've been totally disrespected. Allo wants to, to really treat the addict uh, with care and kindness and love. They have a ridiculously professional staff, 675 years of experience treating addiction, so if you have a problem and you want some help and you want to go to California, go to ALO. That's A-L-O. Right, Dad? Not A-L-O-E. ALO Recovery. Check it out. Thank you. All right. Now, everybody, let's get back to the show. Without further ado, here's the fucking show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave. And I've returned to the Upper West Side with podcast legend, addictionologist, Legend again? What's another word for a legend? I, I don't know. He's blown it. It's Dr. Drew. He's back Thank on you. the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dave. I'm and on. and my wife's in the background there. Uh, and uh, icon. That icon. Oh, thank you, Susan. Addiction icon. Well, a couple things. A, I'm having a weird emotional reaction because last time you're here, we're here with Chris. I'm having the same reaction. And that was the first time I met you guys, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's it's it's you can't like miss his absence. No. You know what I mean? All I know is that when we came last time, Chris had slept at my father's house, Mm -hmm. and we got up early, and he was like a kid on Christmas morning. And for me to, in his recovery at that time, 
was glorious yeah. to see. He was glowing. Given, he had, given did his hair. <laughs> he wore a Brooks Brothers shirt. But, but I'm telling you what, I, I got to see him in the depths of stuff, you know, when it was really crazy. And then to hear the story again and parts of the story I didn't know, it was profound for me. What amazes me is like the, how you and, and I talked to Bob Forrest here and there about it, that you guys remember him at all. Like, I feel like if I showed up any place that I used to be, nobody would ever remember. There, there are people that are hard to remember or that, that you kind of have a faint recollection. And by the way, people change so much in recovery. It's hard to connect and, you know, right to who they were. It's like, oh, that you were that guy. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. Uh, but, but usually you at least get a, a echo of the past because, you know, you're in deep with people most of the time and they're not exactly, um, they're taking energy, let's say, for the right. most part, to, to really work you, properly with them. Exactly. You know? For you to actually do your job, you yes. to know who they are. Yes, somebody was trying to get me to, to get more active in the field again, and I said, I said it's, a, it's a terrible business. It's a terrible business because to do properly, you have to, it has to be a calling. You have to, that's why recovery, that's why 12-step works so well. You can't pay people for this. Right. There's not enough money circulating in the system, or people don't have enough access to resources to, to make it reimbursable. You have to be willing to work many, many, many hours at very hard emotional work for free. You just have to be. And, you know, I, I, so my thing is, like, I'll just keep doing that and not take it on full force again and try to make a business out of it because that, it just seems like a... Uh, it's it, like blowing leaves on an autumn day or something, Well, but right? the people that make money doing it, I'm immediately skeptical of because right. they're either charging too much money or they're not doing the work properly. or So you know, it's not a good business. It's just not a good business. It's, it's a calling. And so, you know, and, and to speaking of that, we happen to... We have a housekeeper here, Michelle, and I happen to be showing her. She'd never seen celebrity rehab, so we were sort of showing her some of the footage of that. And I was re- celebrity rehab. Yeah, what did I say? I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't hear. Uh, celebrity rehab, and and I was revivifying some of those experiences, and it was it was that was a really interesting experience. Wow, over that's... a long period of time, we did a lot of different stuff, and a lot of those people are doing remarkably well now. Remarkably, who's like the the big winner of Celebrity Rehab, or that, or who who did you look at and you're like, I can't believe he came this far. Well, well, Jenny Ketchum is the one I always, tell, you know, she's a now a social worker up in Washington and is a therapist. That's what she does now. She's not a porn. She's not an alcoholic, cocaine addict anymore. She's a kid. She's married. It's unbelievable. New person. Total transformation. Total transformation. And and a one. And you can imagine somebody with that heritage, wonderful professional. Like I, I she's somebody I want to deploy to people that need help. That's yeah. a calling. Uh, no, no, she could one-on-one type stuff can get somebody like that can make a living. It's, it's running a program where you have lots of people. That's where, it, that's where it gets. Because things fall through the cracks. You have to be, you have to just be there all the time and on top of people and, and holding the line. And then you have to have a team that is so cohesive that all of you are just love working together, love helping these people. And that's why you're there, period. You know, and if there's a weak link, you can you're in be trouble. screwed. Well, yeah. But the pa- forget me, the patients. If, if anybody, uh, just forget weak link in terms of not doing your job, you know, nursing documentation or something like that. Just allowing splitting behavior. And it's, it's horrible for the patient. Splitting behavior is when you play somebody against another person. Exactly, exactly. See, I work in a, in a very busy deli, and everything you're telling me reminds me of, of the restaurant. Yeah. And, and there are times I think, why don't I open my own deli mm-hmm. where I could sell pastrami at an incredible price on yeah. Long Island? And 
the first thing is that you get chained to the restaurant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in our restaurant... To do it properly, right. They never use the clinical term of splitting. <laughs> what they say in where I work is... Your mommy daddying us. That's, <laughs> well, that's, that's the it. Way they, they that's the same splitting. behavior. That's right. what children do. Mommy, daddy won't let me. Daddy, mommy says, okay. Mommy and, said yeah. I can I can take lunch at six. Exactly. But in your situation, if a patient gets to do one thing, it could snowball into a million different scenarios. Well, right. You get you get through your disease by splitting and manipulating and bullshitting and totally. obfuscating. You also can't feel whole emotionally if somebody's not containing you. And if you don't feel totally held, contained, and safe, you can't move forward. Because a lot of people are trauma survivors and that kind of stuff. And, and if, if the team doesn't hold you safely and allows the splitting, you start splitting inside. You start feeling, you know, here we go. You start automatically rolling down the hill. But you asked, I still want to get back to the people that are so impressive to me. We reconnected with Daniel Baldwin recently. Oh, my God, a new guy. New human being. What's his deal now? With long-term recovery, and uh, he's doing movies and stuff, and moved to live with his mom because she's old and he need, needs help. Lives he's in, back on Long Island? Lives in Syracuse, okay. I think. And uh, does some radio for Syracuse sports and stuff. And, and he's, he's got his shit together. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. It's just like like you come across that stuff, and you just go, oh, now I, now I can do some more work. <laughs> now now it renews your faith. There, but there are many, 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 many others um, who are really doing quite, quite well. And the ones that didn't do well... I'm hoping everyone now understands we're the victims of the opioid epidemic. Okay. Every single one were were killed by doctors. I'm sorry. That's what that's what Who happened. Who's died since celebrity rehab from Jeff Street? Conway? Uh, and, and all of them, I had you know we he overdosed. Oh yeah, I didn't. He, I he got he got on so many. His doctor, I had he was tap dancing. Because his pain was so well, literally doing soft shoes for me, because uh, he had, his pain was so relieved, and he went back. Or he's a drug addict. Went back to his doctors. His doctors went, "Why are you listening to those prehistoric people who don't understand pain management? They don't understand they, medication. The they're they're medication. interested in being cruel to you. They're 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 what do they call it? Like uh, they're they're cults. They're culty, and they want you to be in the cult. Uh, and and he would, of course, go. He got on so many opioids, he had to be in a nursing home mm. to safely administer them. He, We kept working with him. We kept trying to get him off. He called me two weeks before he died and said, I, I think I'm really ready now. I'm like, Jeff, anytime. We'll go. Let's go, man. And boom, that was it. He went on some last run, as, as is the case, with his doctor-prescribed medication. Uh, Mike Starr, we got him sober. Mike Starr, it's unbelievable that he was sober. It's unbelievable. He was living in sober living, doing great, probably eight months sobriety. Bob was working with him on a very regular basis. And uh, all of a sudden he calls us and goes, I'm moving to Utah. We're like, Ugh. you know, in a drug early recovery. We're like, no, 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 no. He goes, well, I'm living on Cirque Lodge campus. It's a sober sort of living type environment, all sober guys. It's a band, and I got to get my band out there. I got to get to work again. Okay. Which we, band was he in, Mike Starr? Uh, originally, uh, uh, Allison Chains. Okay. Um, and... We're like, please, please, Mike, Mike, Mike. He goes. Uh, he's there doing well, doing okay. Everything he said was true. And then he calls me and goes, I'm having back pain. Mm. I'm like, oh, my God. Please, Mike, do not tell a doctor. Do not tell a doctor you got back pain. Two weeks later, dead with the prescriptions on his bedside by, from a doctor. From a, from a prescription. Benzo-opioid combo, which right. is the deadly combo. Right. Um, and that's what, what Chris's paperwork came back Ro- as. Rodney died of a heart attack, a heart failure. He he was still in and out of sobriety, but but way better, way better, doing really well. Died of heart disease. 
Um, Mindy died of depression. She killed herself, and and they let her go home. This is, and I would argue, this is another medical catastrophe because they sent her home suicidal with guns. It's like really, they put her in the hospital. They kept her like eight hours. She started bullshitting, obfuscating. Oh, oh you want to go home? Okay, home. And they knew she had guns in her. Well, house. if they didn't know, they should have. They you should know have what I mean? That out, yeah. And, and so, <laughs> I can only do so much. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's. You know, Mackenzie's working in, in in treatment now. Mackenzie refuses to come on Dopey. Why? I, I don't know. And I she's just really busy. And I sang the one day at a time theme song to try to lure her to come on, but I don't well, think that right. we'll I don't think that helped. First Lady of Love will help you. Susan Pinsky, you want to jump on and say hi? We'll give it another shot. She'll come on. Susan is a great benefactor to Dopey. So say what's up to the Dopey yeah. Nation. Hey, Dopey Nation. How are you? So, you want so, to say all the podcasts that Dr. Drew does, just in case we forget? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I have to run. Okay, bye. Bye, Susan. So she's she's the brains behind everything, my wife. Your wife is an incredibly generous person. Yes. She always helps me out when yes. I ask, and I, I'm very grateful. She's part of the Dopey her. Nation. She's, she's, she's a linchpin <laughs> to, to our, our being able to get cool well, she, guests. Well, she set up our first... I don't know how she knew... The first encounter, other than your diligence, <laughs> perseverance, but she knew it would somehow be important for me. I, that's just a, an so, instinct. Yeah, she's instinctual. So. Oh, here we go. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This life podcast was made because I wanted to show the success stories from celebrity rehab instead of just hearing all the negative stuff. Uh-huh. So that was the premise. Okay, so she and Bob, and for me it was great because got Bob and I together talk about fun, interesting stuff. So. We do it. Mm-hmm. That's this life. Then there's Swole Patrol with Mike Catherwood. And new one is called uh, Dr. Drew After Dark with Tom Segura and Christina P., which has been, it, it's sort of a reboot of a modern version of Loveline in a weird way. Well, with, uh, Oh, yeah. We got um, If you go to Dr.com, we're starting to publish really interesting stuff there. We, we do the whole history of opium and humanity. Whole history. And then we're going to put it out as an audiobook with important interviews alongside of it. Critical players in. How are you going to do that? Is it going Because that's something you could do as one of these uh, sort of uh, miniseries kinds of things, like serial, and you yeah. tell the story. We did. We do. Okay. Yeah, it's coming out. It's, very, it's, it's not as long as serial, but, and I, I, don't, I don't like serial myself. So it's a different style. But it, but it's, but it has. What I like is we, we went to the sources of either the major players that were. Like we talked to the guys that created methadone, and we put that into the. Wow. We talked to historians and put that. Is in. that out yet? Uh, Susan, is that out yet? It's coming out this week. This week, chapter History one. History of opium. So, so really, right the beginning chapter is about like Neanderthals and Mesopotamia. <laughs> we literally go the whole way, and uh, what, the reason I was interested in telling the history is we make the same mistake every time. We've had other epidemics of opiates, and we make the same mistake every time. And I posit that we're kind of doing it again. That we always get overly enthusiastic about replacement therapies every time, and I would argue that while I am, I am a endorser of replacement therapies. My thing is finding the right patient for the right treatment. We have not got that yet, and so people ask me, well, "What about cannabis replacement? What about opiate? What about all good?" I have no idea who to give that to yet. Uh, for sure. I mean, like, plenty of people take these things and want them and get on them, and lives are prolonged because of it. No doubt in my mind. I'm interested in flourishing. Quality of life. Yeah, more than quality. I'm, I'm interested what you got, what Chris had for a few minutes, what Jenny Ketchum's got. I want to help that. 
And, and so to me, making somebody chronically ill, it's not, and, and, I, and I, perhaps that's pejor- too pejorative. I, I mean, I, I, I like hearing that yeah, term. Yeah, frankly. but but I, it's it, but it is it's making somebody chronically dependent on me and medicines and things, and I'm not interested in that. And there are people that are, and I will refer to that all the time. I have no problem with that, but it's not not my thing. I, I didn't get into this field for that, which is what you wanted me to talk about. Well, I do. How I yeah, got into I'm, this. We're field. circling back before yeah. even that. Uh, you grew. I see. I didn't even know. I mean, one of the things Chris said to me was, uh, <laughs> "Is Doctor Drew Jewish?" And oh, yeah. I said, "He doesn't seem Jewish." I'm, I'm I'm, a, I'm Jewish. Yeah, but you're Jewish. You're I'm Jewish, Jew-ish. and you're Jewish. A- and it, my mom's not. Right? Oh, she's not. So you're not Jewish. Well, I'm raised that way for until okay. I was about ten because I have extended family on my dad's side for sure. It's you know Russian, Ukrainian, Jews, immigrants, turn of the century, boom, full story. And then that family was Jewish. So I didn't know how to navigate all that, right? And you grew up in Southern California. Yeah, Pasadena, believe it or not. Still there. And crazy. you're still there. It's crazy. Do you love crazy. it? Uh, no, I love New York City. You do? Yeah. Me too. Yeah, I like Pasadena. I love It was a great place to raise our kids. We have a home there that we really love. We love our home more than Pasadena. And and so at Pasadena, no, I'm not disparaging Pasadena. I really, 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 we support a lot of charities and stuff there. I'm, I'm involved. But I love New York City. You love the energy of New York. It's, it's so weird. I realized when I would go out on the street about a year ago, I was like, what is this feeling? What am I doing? Oh, I'm in love with this place. Well, it's, it's so like, weird. There's just so it's, much energy. It's nothing. It's like no other feeling I know about a place. I, I grew up on 27th and 8th. Yeah. And I went to elementary school and high school on 96th and Madison, 94th mm. and Madison. And what the hell? And, and it's many, a long way away. For, well, it was a good school. For many, private many, school. many Jewish school. No, it was a public school. You yeah. had to take a test to get it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for many, many, many years, I had to take the subway. To school, wow. you know, as our school bus. Wow. Starting in seventh grade, I would take Fantastic. the M4 bus from 31st Street to 90th Street and 5th Avenue. And then in, I think, eighth grade, I was like, I'm just going to take the subway. Yeah. Um, so for a million years, I took the subway everywhere I went. Nowadays, I don't like taking the subway. I, I love the subway. I walk. See, I, I love the subways because we don't have that where I'm from. No shit. And so especially that. the Broadway line's right outside here. Yeah. And, the, and I can get anywhere in 10 minutes. And that's Insane where I'm from. I to me to get from point A to point B to anything in Southern California, it's an hour. No matter what, no matter where I'm going, no matter what I'm doing, it's an hour. And so, and it's and it's in a car, and it's uncomfortable, and it's miserable, and I'm hating it. Bye. Do people swarm you on the subway? No, I don't, they don't expect to see me, so I just keep look down and keep down. Keep, yeah. All right. Um, so I took the train up here, though. Yeah. And a dude gets on the train, and I haven't, you know, I've been riding the train. A dude gets on the train, and he starts monologuing oh, yeah. really loud. Yeah, and yeah. I haven't seen that in so long. Oh yeah. And everybody like, and it gets into this real racially charged stuff, and and then I notice that he stinks too, which is like, and everybody jumps up and leaves, and he's monologuing. And across from him is this older white lady on, like, on the phone, mm-hmm. like, just immersed into the phone, yeah. and a and an older black guy who's just sitting there, and the dude is just screaming at the white woman, and he keeps looking at the black dude, he's like, "I'm sorry, brother," and he keeps going, and I'm just sitting there, I just, 
I love watching it, but I hate being a part of it. You know, I like walking, and I like walking past. I'm with you. Through, I'm with you. Here and there. I, it's, it's a little. It's a little scary to be confined on a car with people that are acting out. But um, I grew up with it, so it's just like it annoys the shit out of me. It's like the conductor knows. So just get in here and and do something. But what the hell can he do anyway? Well, the guy that's a psychosis, right? And that person needs help, and that's the bigger problem from my perspective is that we're not helping people on the streets that need help. Well, we need to and have I, a system. It, well, we need some. We need not just system. We yes, we need system, and we need some chronic housing and chronic therapies for people that are chronically ill. And we also need to expand conservatorships and expand the definition of what gra- does that mean? Expand and expand the definition of gravely disabled. So included in gravely disabled is I can't house myself, and I think I'm Napoleon. Okay, now I think I'm Napoleon. I can't house myself. Eh. That's a chronic stay. We can't really hold you. We can't really do anything for you unless you say, I'm going to kill myself or somebody else. I say, expand that to include the situ- the, the symptomatologies that keep people chronically languishing and miserable. You've got to have that. And then conservatorship is, if somebody meets criteria for chronic, severe, disabling mental illness, that you have a professional come in and take over like a parent. And and sort of get them housing and get them where they need to go, and they'll get better. And then you graduate them out. Then you get them out, just like a drug addict, right? You, once they get better, you can kind of move them on. It's the same thing. I see the problem though. Uh, with, What's the problem? With with because I had this plan to come up here and do the origin of Doctor Drew. I still want to do that. Nothing clinical. Yeah. And you're just such a wellspring of information that I could just mention somebody monologuing on the train and right. conservative. Uh-huh. No, that's good. All right. Well, I have, like, I have ideas. I got. I got. I, I worry. I love people, and I worry about people, and I'm concerned about some the directions we're going in certain things. I'm not more than concerned. I'm in a in a. I wouldn't say panic, but I'm in. I'm apoplectic about some stuff, wow. and, and and the fact that people are suffering, and in Southern California, what you're going to see is massive infectious disease outbreaks, massive, and I mean, I mean, you're going to read about it in the headlines, and that is unconscionable. That why, in, do you, in why, do even, why do you bring this up? Like what? What? It's on my mind all the time. But why? Like why would that happen? What's the deal? Because Mother Nature, you, it, when you when you do not attend to the needs of civilization, it is natural. It's pruning the fields. It's natural. Um, pruning the bushes. I, I'm not even giving an evolutionary biological explanation for it. It's just simply the case that Mother Nature moves in. Moves in with the rodents and the fleas and the airborne illnesses. So you get, we already have a typhus outbreak in Southern California. You aware of that? No. We have a massive typhus problem. There's other organisms in with the rats, including Ursinia pestis. And then you'll see human to human tuberculosis. And then you'll see, um, let's see, we have two visions. Uh, I was thinking the other day, there's something else we're going to, oh, well, Ursinia, typhus, TB. God, there was something else I was thinking the other day we're bound to see, too. But the point is, when you don't, the reason humans can congregate in things we call cities is you would, the humans have taken care of, oh, right, measles, we're going to see massive measles outbreak. I was going to say measles. Yeah, we, we, we've taken stupid. things, we've taken care of sanitation and housing and rodents and vermin and diseases when they pop up. We've decided we're not going to do any of that. And people, you, you've not been in Southern California a long time. It, it, third world countries are, do a much better job of attending to their needy. Much better job. 
So, you're so anyway, the, the, I don't don't send me down this path. No, I it, mean it's upsetting to me. All it's on my mind. That's why I bring it up. It's disturbing to me. I, I'm tr- I'm trying to get. I'm, it's the first time I left. I'm actually getting politically active, trying to solve this thing. Well, that's great. I yeah. mean, and 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 I whatever we can do to help any cause you have, you, we're always uh, a click away. I, I was good. <laughs> well. Uh, all right. Yes. Thank we have you. a great we have a great listenership that is incredibly it, it, loyal. It, it, and it, it, you know what helped me is this idea that meth heroin addicts on the street are happy, and they're just they're just should be left alone to do what they want to do. Man, it's just well, they're who noble. Says that? Everybody in Southern California and Northern California too. San Francisco's got a massive problem with this too. Just give them the needles. I, and I, my position is, well, if that's true, give them the heroin too. Let's let's do safe and let's do the whole thing. Why do you why do you draw the line? It's stupid. Don't draw the line. Give them the heroin. That's fine. And by the way, if you're giving them the heroin, you can probably work with them, motivate them, get a relationship with them. But oh no no, leave them. Oh, they're they're. Oh, this is what they want to do, man. Well, and and they want to do it. But that's because they don't want to deal with them. It's kind of like no, with no, the no. On the it's train. a philosophy. No, okay. wrong. It's it's they don't understand what they're looking at. They don't understand. They're like he must be happy because he's he's high. If you talk to him, he doesn't want help. Now is he high? He's like he's doing his thing, man. He's a noble, homeless person. Like, it's the old drug problem. He'll get whatever. Who are you to say, man? This is what it's the, some California ideology. Oh my god! I got you. Now, now the thankfully the ACLU has started to come around as letting us at least address the chronically mentally ill that are dying on the streets. I mean, how, I, I want people. I want these people that go to the courts and get these decisions, and the judges and the the city council representative. I want them held criminally accountable. They're killing people, and this summer they will endanger the entire population of, of the region with infectious diseases. But who am this I? This summer. This summer. Coming soon. Coming this soon. Summer. Coming soon. You will. You will hear words, illnesses you've not heard about in four hundred years. All right. This is a Doctor Drew yeah. dopey exclusive. This is an prediction. exclusive. Yes, that's a prediction. Typhus is coming back to Southern. Oh Coast. no, Typhus is, is there. Back. Typhus is here. It's just going to. It's going to weird prehistoric. I know what's going to come. What I, is I don't it? want tell us. I'll tell you off the. I don't want. I don't. I don't want to sound alarmist, but it's it's a word that you will hear and go. I cannot believe that in 2019 that's breaking out in downtown Los Angeles. Well, downtown Los Angeles is a really fucked up place. Doesn't have to be. I, I We've allowed it to be. I had a job. I was in pseudo recovery mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, and I got a job on a film set, mm-hmm. and uh, I was smoking pot. I had left a treatment in Florida. I had lost my apartment in Manhattan, so I moved to Los Angeles. You, you, we might want to speak to cannabis replacement like that, too, because a lot of people think they're... In recovery, when they do that, well, that's one of my big topics. Here. Yeah, I didn't think I was. I, I just you knew I, better. I was dying to smoke pot again. Yeah, and I was, and I was dying to not. I was not ready for recovery. Yeah, yeah. I was not at a place in my well, life. But, and, for and you know what? I, wouldn't you argue? Let's let's step back and talk philosophically for a second. Not a bad move on your part in terms of safety and moving towards real sobriety. Well, just, no. I mean, philosophically. Philosophically, maybe. For, forget clinically. But philosophically, I, I moved into a house with a guy who I used heroin forever. Yeah, shocking. And he, and he told me that he was just smoking weed. He was in Northern California. When he returned from Northern California, it turns out he had picked up a meth habit, mm-hmm. and he was on meth for a month. And uh, so I was like, well, I'm not going to do dope, but I'll do meth. Did he start taking apart your televisions? And- no, he yeah. ha- he painted his entire room Floor to ceiling black. Wow. Floor the floor was black, the walls were black, the ceiling was black. Wow. Air conditioning running all day. And he had a 
he had a DVD of What's Happening, the old oh, 70s shows, no. and he kept it playing in rotation. Oh. He would sit in his makeshift grow room smoking meth, and, uh, and when I had meth or money, I would join him. We'd play video games until he freaked out, and I would leave. That was our life. Sounds so uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable, yeah. but I would walk around downtown L.A., kind of tweaking yeah. and kind of like missing the serenity that heroin would give me. And I was working on a film set and some whole, and this is how green I was to the nature of downtown LA. Some junkie comes up to me and I just see him as a homeless man because you don't see homeless people in New York as junkies. You just, I never did. They, they're not. Yeah. They're, they're chronically mentally ill who's sort of gotten out of the system. And they're not like sun-kissed homeless like yeah. they are in LA. Yeah, yeah. So like this homeless guy, he's like, yo man, you, you got a cigarette? And I was like, I'll give you two if you show me where the dope is. And uh, so I give him two cigarettes, and he goes, it's across the street. You know, he's like, see that guy? It was like, because it's everywhere. Yeah. You know? Everywhere, right. Um, and and we've, we've changed our laws, so it's not illegal. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And Double? even... even What? Heroin? Not a felony. It's just like a, it's a parking a ticket. ticket. Yeah. It's a ticket. Yeah. And so they, they don't put them in prison, which I have mixed feelings about, which is I don't want the penitentiary system to be the mental health delivery system but they also don't push them into treatment they just they just give them citations and that's it See, or, my, or nothing because they know nothing's going to happen my brain can't i mean it's like i think that you have all of these things going on because you've dealt with all these things yeah. you can see the micro and the macro yes like all i'm trying to do is like keep a couple of junkies company through the computer right and it's much it's a simpler thing to do i can't possibly wrap my head around you're not worrying thing. about the big picture i can't you know like i'm that's like that's all right I'm but, like, but, but listen man what you're doing is Incredibly important, I think. Well, it's, I, I really think it's, it's not an accident that I'm sitting here and talking and have you on my pods and things. I think what you're doing is really important. It, it's it's an honest talk about this thing that people get called addiction, and it's funny and tragic and poignant. It's all these things, and you guys are telling all those stories. Here, I'm going to read you this real quick. Yeah. No, you know what? I'm not going to read this. I wanted to hear the origin of Dr. All right, let's Drew. do it. Let's get there. Fuck that Here we shit. go. All right, here we go. Let's go. Where do you so, want to go? So when did you decide you wanted to be a product of a normal, place? spontaneous vaginal delivery in 1958? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, the doctor thing, I kind of grew up with that in my head. Um, my dad was a doctor. My uncle was a doctor. Jewish. You're going to be a doctor. Good at sciences. Got a great education. First year in college, I kicked ass, but it killed me psychologically to do it. And I was looking around at the competition. I was at Amherst College. Freaking brilliant kids there, and I was like, "Those guys." In California, went to Amherst, yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. Um, went to a you know a prep school, and the headmaster goes, "Go here." Right? All right, so I was between there and Stanford, and Stanford seemed kind of at that time did not seem so intriguing. Amherst looked like really like I remember I went bucolic Ivy League professor. Well, yeah, that, and I remember I went there and visited a friend. He goes, "Look, if you want an education, you come here." And I thought, well, "Yeah, I want education." And he was absolutely right. It changed my brain for good in a ways that I cannot describe. It made me an analytic, made me a good reader, made me a good mathematician, made me a scientist too, and and, and appreciate. I blame the school for everything because at, at that school you you end up being interested in everything. I had studied, for years I've now studied history and philosophy and other things because I, I know there's such a broad 
brush to paint everything with and to understand the context of things. So anyway, that did that to me. But after that first semester, I'm like, I'm out. This is too hard. I can't, I'm not, I can't do this. I can't. And for a year and a half, I screwed around in like music and theater and all kinds of shit and got severely depressed and started having panic attacks. I mean, disabling panic attacks. And, um, but would not contemplate going back because that wasn't me, man. I was doing my own thing. And one day I just thought... You wouldn't contemplate going back to school? To sciences, to sciences. And one day I thought, I guess I I could probably take a biology class again. And immediately I felt relief of my symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stuff. I thought, well, maybe that's the direction I ought to go. And then I felt better. And then I started moving in that direction. I felt better. Now, I now had two years to complete pre-medical training, which was intense at that school. But I will tell you, when I got to it the next semester, I had the capacity for it. Not only did I have the more spontaneous desire, because that was my decision, my uh, my adult male brain now was capable of this. And it truly, looking back now, I was not... The, adult, the male brain takes a long time to come online, to be able to do things and sit and study seven hours a night and that kind of thing. I was not there. But I was there by my junior year. And so I just just bared down, went through it, did summer school in Cambridge and you know in, in Massachusetts and just was all in and, and I felt great doing it. But it was it was a period of desperation because I still didn't know if I was gonna get into medical school and all this stuff. Got into SC at the last minute and uh Back the, in your old stomping ground. Yeah, back here I'm back in L.A. I thought I was going to go to B or Tufts. That's sort of where I was aiming. Um, but SC came in at the last minute, and I was like, all right. I, I've loved their, I always loved their, that county hospital with all the clinical training. I know I want to be a clinician. I know I want to see a lot of stuff. Little did I know how much stuff you see in that facility. It was it was like a mash unit back in the day. And, uh, and I was happier and happier and happier. I had the greatest. I loved medical school. I loved it. I would get out every day, and I'd go, oh, my God, I feel so good. I love this so much. And um, I, I think because I... Because it was a calling. You knew it yeah, was oh, a yeah. calling as soon and as you I, were there. I... I, I I knew it fit. I knew it was right. And, and I loved the training. And third and fourth year, I bogged down a little bit. And then my residency, I loved that. I loved the medicine, tra- general medicine training. Now, during my residency, I remember I was on a cardiology rotation at the end of my internship. And the cardiologist sits down and goes, hey, anybody here interested in um, moonlighting? There's a psychiatric hospital down the street here. They need somebody on Thursday nights. I said, well, as soon as I get my license, I'm, I'm in. That sounds interesting. So I lived in Pasadena my whole life. I didn't know that down the street was this huge psychiatric hospital behind these huge walls. It, I was kind of knew it was there, but didn't know what was back there. Acres and acres and acres of beautiful grounds and cabins. They hide and the crazy, crazy people behind the walls. Well, it was frankly where Hollywood used to go back in the day. Wow. So, so WC fields died there. He used to dry out there. Everybody, everybody went there in the thirties, forties and fifties. This is where they got their TLC and they dealt with their alcoholism not in any kind of enlightened way, trust me. It was sort of a psychoanalytic institute. When I got there, it was a museum of psychiatry. I mean, I saw people, I ended up taking care of people that had had some of the horrible things that psychiatry did to people, cingulotomies and phlebotomies and all this neurosurgery shit. Oh my God, just catastrophes. And and because psychiatrists aren't medical, aren't, aren't internal medicine doctors most often the time. They get enthusiastic about biological interventions and have not no good judgment. Right, good they don't ju- understand how it works. They don't have good judgment about it, so, and so they get too enthusiastic about stuff that's like really dangerous. 
So I get there and I'm like, oh my God, this is fast. This is great. This is, I mean, I'll come, how much more can I work here? And by, by the end of my residency, I, I ended up taking over their medical services. And all the time, even during my residency, when I would, I would go one or two nights a week and work out, you know, if I, if I could, and I'd work through the night there. And I was, of course... Well, what was the thing about it that really turned you on? So I always kind of like... Well, first of all, I was doing radio at the time. Well, that's where I also want to... What, what got you into that world at all? I, in 1983... Uh, I was ask a surgeon. Was that what yeah, yeah, yeah? I was uh, a third year medical student. I was living within a block of a radio station that overnight became popular in Los Angeles called K Rock in 1983. And, fr- and because I knew people lived in the area, friends of mine knew people at the radio station. And I get a call one day. They go, "Hey, you know that radio station we're all listening to now?" I go, "Yeah, yeah." Well, they want you to come on the radio. I'm like, "Wow, crazy!" Uh, yeah, they have this saying. They describe Loveline essentially. It's midnight to three in the morning. And they want you to come on. They they have to make it a community service show. They have to satisfy community service hours for the FCC. And uh, and could you come on? And it'll be funny. You'll do a segment called "Ask a Surgeon." You'll use big words. It'll be hysterical. I'm like, what the f-? like? What? What's so funny about big what? words? What? Why in the world do you ask me to do this? Well, they had me meet with the guy who was one of the doctors on the show and he was late and I shouldn't have been out of the hospital. And it was, uh, Oh my God, it was very stressful. Even that first meeting and he came in and uh, swept down, sit, sat across from me in a chair and lowered his head and fell asleep. And I was, and my you friend lulled him to sleep with, big no, words. no, he just immediately he fell was asleep. Exhausted. Yeah. And well, uh, there was, there, he was high. Mm. Okay. And, uh, I'm not saying either way. And, my friends are like, oh, that's the way he always is. Isn't that funny? Huh? I'm like, no, no, I, I got to get back to the hospital, man. This is not funny. He'll be, he'll get up. He'll talk to you. Don't worry. About 30 minutes later, picked his head up, walked into the bathroom. We are at a mutual friend's house, not his house. Right. Walks into the bathroom. He starts taking a shower. And so my friends pushed me into the bathroom, and it was across the opaque shower door. We had the first conversation about what I was going to be doing on radio. I still didn't know. I went in with my textbooks. I was totally freaked out. Was there something? Was there something in you that always wanted to be in media? Like what? No. Was, so that wasn't even a thing. No, I, I like public speaking. I like performing. This was. I, I think that's why I liked the opportunity. But what motivated me was I was on the front lines of HIV and AIDS at that point. I was treating. I was involved. I, don't, I can't, couldn't tell you already by my fourth year of medical school how often I was sitting people down and telling them they had six months to live. It was ridiculous. It was a horrible, dark time. And at that point early in time... Early 80s, 83, 84. Early 80s. And, and at that point, nobody was discussing HIV and AIDS with young people. And I was like, hey, I'm 24 years old. I know what 18-year-olds are doing. You've got to talk to them. And the sexual revolution of the 70s never contemplated that adolescents would follow the suit of the adults. It's insane. They didn't. And I was an adolescent through all that. I'm like, well, of course, adolescents do whatever the adults are saying well, is okay to do. Was so hypersexual. Everything. So, like, why wouldn't teenagers be uh, hypersexual? But, like, but you understand, the culture at large was like, no, don't discuss it with them. Then they'll want to do it. It's like, what? So uh, my thing was, oh no, 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 I got to get up and talk about this thing. They, they they'd never heard of it when I started talking about it. So I. I went in and uh, and I was like, "Can I keep my bag?" This is like because I couldn't believe the stuff that was being asked of these disc jockeys in the middle of the night. So I'd, if I was on call or something, I wouldn't come, but I'd come. It was Sunday night. It kind of moved to ten to one at one point, so it was a little more convenient for me. And then one day, I just kind of sat down and was part of the show. Um, 
and just kept doing it on Sunday nights for, for 10 years. It it, it originally, it was poor man, a guy named Jim Trenton, Swedish Eagle, uh, who's on Sirius still. And, um, a guy named Scott Mason who ended up dying of lupus complications. And, uh, and then there was an attorney and this, and it was just kind of craziness for a lot of years, but I always thought of it as community service. I just thought it was interesting. And so when I got to the psychiatric hospital, I thought, God, there's a lot of mental health stuff coming across the radio. I I'm, I'm interested in it. I had a problem myself and I was terribly mistreated when I, when I went to the health services, when I was having depression and anxiety at Amherst college, they told me to take long walks and get my shit together. And I was like, I, I would, (laughs) if if that would work, I've tried everything. I'm I'm disabled by this mood problem I'm having. Anyway, I got horrible care. There was no such thing as adolescent healthcare at the time. And I thought that's needed. Mental health services definitely underrepresented. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to hang out at this hospital and learn about it. I'm interested. I'm fascinated by it. And of course, most of the medical problems were down in the drug unit. So that's where I was hanging out a lot. In, in for the first... So it's kind of where drugs bumped up against depression or drugs bumped up against no, no, mental no, no, illness. No, 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 no. This was a freestanding psychiatric hospital. I was the medical service, eventually the medical service director, but I was running around all night dealing with medical problems, right? Drug withdrawal, infections, endocarditis, complications of medications. Okay. And, okay. and I'm running around doing that, but guess who had the most problems? The drug unit. So I, and I, and that I was kinda, the source for all of these problems, basically, that you were dealing with. Like, more than other parts of the hospital. I, the other part, there was plenty of other parts of the hospital, trust me. You'd be amazed how many mental health problems are either caused by medical problems or are associated with medical problems. It, it's amazing. And how many the medications cause. It's insane. So I became an expert in that and uh, became really good at drug withdrawal because so, I, I, I was drawn to that. I liked it. I, what was it about, about drugs? It's, I mean, because like, you could be a doctor and you could see a million kinds of deaths and a million kinds of afflictions and be drawn anywhere. But you got drawn it was, into addiction yeah. like a moth to a flame. Mm, well, it, not at first. It just happened to be, I just like the staff. You know, I like seeing, well, okay. So I like the staff. I like the community. You know, drug units are communities. The rest of the hospital just sort of nursing stations. And there was this community down there. And even as I was helping with the withdrawal and the medical problems, I'd look into the treatment room and there's the 12 steps on the wall. I go, what is that goofy stuff you guys are doing? Come on now. I do real medicine. I right. can get you off the drugs. I had no idea. Sure. But I saw people get well. And it was astonishing to me. I saw young people dying of drug addiction come in and a few months later be new people, right. just as you and I have discussed before. And I was like, holy hell, what, what is happening here? I, I must be a part of this. This is There's nowhere else in medicine you can go from dying to better so than you ever were. That was the thing. That, that, that caught my attention. I'm seeing people do that. And so I was like, I, I need to know more. I need to learn more. And as I got in... I was one of my areas of emphasis in college was neurophysiology. I liked the brain stuff. And so I always had a tendency toward the brain. I always liked mental health. And so to me, addiction was the crossroads of everything medicine, psychiatry, family therapy, psychoanalysis, whatever. It was all had use there. there. It's all in there. It all had use. And so I was excited by that. And by 1991, I was hanging out there a lot. Uh, Radio still going one night a week, whatever. 
And uh, and so I was learning all kinds of stuff that was applicable to what I was hearing on the radio too. The AIDS thing was calming down. I think I think I go towards whatever the main problem I see of the time. And so for me, it was HIV and AIDS. Then it was drug and alcohol. Now it's the homeless thing. So so I'm sort of I draw I sort of I, when I I just can't not get at what I see to be the problem of our time. So drugs and alcohol has been it for quite some time. And so I've, I've been there and hanging out there um, medically. I mean, I want to use my discipline, my training to make a difference so I can sort of go towards where the need really is. By 1991, the uh, program director was aware that I was there all the time doing all the medical stuff. And he calls me, he goes, hey, I need an assistant director. So um, so I, if I'm on vacation or something, you cover me. No big deal, no big deal. Just you know, maybe a couple weeks a year, you'll have to step in. It's like, you're already there all the time. It's nothing, nothing different. Okay, six months later, he quits. I move into directorship. So now it's like on. It's 1991, and I have to really get my expertise up. And right. so I, that's when I committed myself and really trained myself and took board certifications and, and got in deep. Still, I say three to five years after that for me to get the skill that I needed, that I would say where I was really useful. And when and when did was it co-occurring with Loveline blooming? Because Loveline- so so Loveline is kind of cruising along. And um, when did it become Loveline? When did it, it was it, it was already Loveline at the very beginning. When did I when I got pick, there, it was Loveline. Did you pick Adam Carolla? Or did, okay, was- so so we're there. We are. Um, it's clearly you know articles being written about us and when i was a resident my residency director flipped out that i was doing it i mean flipped out positive or negative negative and, and was screaming at me he had, he had the article from the la times put out in front of me he was pounding his fist spitting on me you're sick there's something wrong with you how could you talk about this stuff to kids fast forward two years that guy meets me in the hall and goes hey you still doing that radio show because because then it shifted from don't talk to kids about sex to we have an obligation to alert them about aids and hiv the term safe sex had been coined we were talking about condoms in 1983 that that coin that came around 86 or so for the public for everybody and um and he's like, hey, how about I do it now? And I'm like, you ass, come come. Don't you remember spitting on me yeah, three years yeah, ago? Yeah, right, no. I ended up becoming his chief resident and running the residency program. It just People are so stupid. Uh, you know, you should, don't question the instincts of young people is what I learned from that. Because right. I had an instinct that it was an important thing. I, and, I, and I actually had to quit because of his, his, his freak out. He was threatening to fire me. And then I drifted back and... So so you quit here the radio or you quit I quit the- radio quit radio oh, no I couldn't quit residency I, that, but I was being threatened with that any event so now we're cruising along now it's like 1991 I'm still doing radio um, it's clearly quite popular and one weekend the, the Sunday night doesn't get a rating book but they paid to get a rating and it turned out to be a 28 share which in Los Angeles if you get a a, a one you're like you're a hit. 28 was like I've never heard of such a thing right and so I called the program director or the, the actual general manager of the station I go I, I don't think I'm on radio I've been doing this for a few years but I really don't know anything but this seems like we're all participating in something that's kind of an asset and he goes I should put it on five nights a week that's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna put it on five nights a you week you called him and then bang he said well this. and at that time I was deep in workaholism Deep. I was getting up at five in the morning. I had ten to fifteen patients in the hospital. A lot of them critically ill. I would do outpatient medicine, and then I would do the psychiatric stuff and the med- and the addiction stuff. It was insane. It, it was beyond. So when he went to five nights a week, I was like, "Oh shit!" Because I wasn't getting home until ten o'clock at night. I was getting up at five, getting up at ten. I don't know how. T- talk about 
my wife, how did she put up with that? I, I don't know. It's like being with an alcoholic or something. And uh, it forced me to come home for dinner and then go do radio at you know ten o'clock at night, uh, which is what we were doing. And um, they eventually—I I can't remember too much about what happened next. They syndicated it eventually a little Did you, bit. Who brought in Adam? <clears throat> so, a couple guys. By, by then, poor man and Eagle and Scott; those guys were all gone. And uh, Ricky Rackman, I was broadcasting with from Headbangers Ball, sure. breaking. And a couple of television producers showed up. Went, Let's do a TV show. I'm like, I don't know what's that. How do you do that? So, did you I, like doing it with Ricky Rackman? Or yeah, not? I like Ricky. Yeah, and. and and I was like, right, how do you, what's that mean? I, I go, look, I, I, I think I could squeeze it in on Friday evening, Friday afternoon and evening, and Saturday afternoon and evening. Otherwise, I can't do this. And they're like, we'll make it work. Because I was deep in workaholism. I cannot emphasize that enough. And um, Ricky, for whatever reason or other, couldn't make a deal with them. And everyone turned to me and went, what do you, what do you want to do? Who's your co-host? I'm like, that, you don't understand. I have no idea. I don't know anything about radio and television. I know what you're talking about. Leave me alone to practice medicine. I'll do your damn TV show on the at Friday night. So you really had no ambition to to no to it, it, producer it, host no, celebrity no. whatever no. But but it was intriguing to me, and I've always like had a sort of a creative impulse. I'm like, no, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that would be like. What that what is that? Let's explore that. And uh, they're like, who do you want to be the co-host? And I remember I went running the next day, and I could show you the spot I was standing. And I went, do you know that guy that does Mr. Burcham in the morning show? He'd been on Love Line one time as Mr. Burcham. And I thought, I bet that guy has the sensibilities to do this. I bet he could do it. So I called somebody. They screen tested us. They put us in a makeup booth. And they said, uh, they filmed a pilot. It was like a week later after I thought of it. And other people had recommended him too, apparently. And uh, and they said, you guys work out your relationship. We'll start filming in an hour. Wow. And, and we'd never really met before. never spent any time together. And that was like a nine-hour shooting day. And I remember at the end of that day, the stage manager came, came up to us and goes, how many years you guys been working together? We went, oh, no, no, we met this morning. They were like, oh, oh, okay, this is something. Something's going on here. Some so, special so because, right. that emerged. So because of that uh, television show, which went on MTV, they brought him over to radio. And then Ricky, again, I don't know what happened. He dropped off. And then Adam and I did it for 10 years together. And he and I still do a podcast together every day. And what's that one called? Adam and Dr. Drew Show. And how often, where do you record that? At the Coral Empire. And you're friends with him now? Yeah, yeah. Were you immediately friends with him after the first day? Or was it like a, a, a slow friendship? Not, not an easy person to be a friend with, but I always uh, had fun with him and would count him as a friend like very quickly yeah i would count him as a friend because oh, we were kind of you're kind of in a spaceship together experiencing this stuff it bonds you together a little bit right and then especially with how successful it was yeah i mean that show was uber successful yeah people may not remember it was a big deal for about five years i'm and, talking i'm talking to people about optioning dopey as a tv show which yeah. is like a big joke no but, um, you should do it but my my friend who actually had come up with the idea to do a drug podcast in the first place he goes we'll call it drug line we'll make it look like love line but it'll be drug line so i just want you to know if i steal love line you can do it you're welcome to it my friend brad i I would i'll have to give you a few notes on how to make that work though because it's not what people think it is no of course i I wanted to just be regis and kathy lee regis is a junkie (laughs) and kathy lee is a garbage head that's what i wanted i wanted to be a tiled kitchen i love it and you got mugs and check it out this is what i'm pitching right now yeah it's top secret so if you steal this i know it was mine yeah yeah we do the methadone minute which we do now anyway we go to the methadone clinic and we have some methadonians rant about something nice we do a cooking segment with people kind of in early recovery we teach them to cook and here's the new the new idea 
We call it a rehab karaoke, where I have a three-piece band, one of these drummers yeah. with the drums yeah. around his neck, guitar player, upright bass player, show up in rehab, and they sing karaoke. The, the, you, you go to rehab units. Yes. And the, oh, yes. it's awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Everything about that is great. I, let me, again, let me... What's the problem? The TV part, how you how you do that. We so, all so, let, so now I do know a bit about television after all these years, and so let me let me help you. Um, but so so let me get back to my story. So please. So now we're we're in the nineties now somewhere, right? Well, and, you're also like just the success was tremendous. The like, Love Line. Everybody loved Love Line, and even I liked Love Line. I well, remember lying it was just something I did, it. and I did it every night on radio. We did it long after MTV was gone. And um, it just—it was just an important resource, I thought. Now, as the internet came around, it became less different, and we had to adjust. And I ended up doing it with Mike Kath, who I did it with uh, uh, Stryker for a few years, and because uh, Adam left and did morning radio for a while, and then he developed his podcast empire. Uh, and then I, Stryker, and then and then Adam, um, and then Michael Catherwood. We did it for several years very well. That was a good. good we, but again, these were all good incarnations, served their role. But as the I think it's the need because the internet, people didn't see the need so much, even though the need is just as much as ever because the information on the internet is so dangerous and so impossible for people to interpret with, with good judgment. And so I, the, so the Dr. Drew After Dark thing is sort of an attempt to bring, I'm always, I'm trying to bring things back a little bit to help people with these issues. But so we're now we're cruising along. I'm just, we're doing radio at night. I'm just doing my medicine. I'm doing med- general medicine and psychiatric medicines. I'm the the addiction unit gets more solidified in terms of the team we're doing. I start ending up doing. We, we treated a lot of celebrities, and no one no one knows who we treated during those years because we were we were you know we were serious about confidentiality and stuff at that facility. And a couple guys showed up with this idea couple of television producers, this celebrity rehab thing. And I was like, wow, I sure would like to show people how this works, but you can't do that. That's impossible. But I hadn't pitched television in a while. I was doing sort of news commentary and things like that, but I hadn't pitched television in a while. And I thought, yeah, it's important. Good to get in front of people and see what's going on on these networks. So I'll, I'll walk and around. And that was in the room these. of reality, of reality TV it was, was happening. So they could have a wheelhouse for how they could show it. It was 97, 98, right? Was that, that? It was off the heel. It's no, like, wait a minute. It was like 2006, 2005, something like that. And, and and I'm kind of, you know, see, Adam, yeah, but in 2006. And so showing it around and uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm like, right, of course, you can't do this. And and then VH1 showed interest. I'm like, oh, no, Jesus, well, now what do I do? I never well, imagined VH, somebody would want to do it. But VH1 was the zenith for drug stories and entertainment. Well, that's how they, the music and that's all how that. they saw themselves. And so they thought this part of the story was important. I, again, I didn't know enough at the time. I did not know television at the time. I, I just was sort of loosely familiar. And uh, and I went to hiding. I was like, I, 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 I'm just, I just, they'll forget about it. And about maybe six weeks later, um, they started coming back. Well, what's up with this? What's going on? What are you guys doing? And when that was going on, and I didn't respond, <laughs> Bob Forrest came in my office. He came in one day, and we had we had sort of a desk we would sit at, and then a patient chair. You know, that's sort of the usual deal. And he sat in the patient chair, and he went, God, I am so sick and tired of our celebrity patients, which we had lots of, being shown on TV that as though they are just on a publicity campaign or on a spa vacation when they come for treatment. 
These people are sick. They work hard. And I think we should do a TV show where we show that. And he said that to me. I was so stunned. I went, Bob, somebody's brought this up to me. Are, are you, you really think this is what we ought to do? Because I was not convinced. And Bob had, has so much experience around these musicians and public uh, yeah, people. And yeah. he's, he's one of them. Yep. So and, he, and he just goes, absolutely, we've got to do it. He smacked his hands on his knees and he jumped up and he ran out of the office. Wow. And I was like, okay, I'm going to call these guys back and we'll see where it goes. And still a million problems to overcome to get it where it goes. Oh my God, so many problems. And, and, um, and, and extraordinary work for me. Um, but it, it was good. It Addiction was good. on TV is a weird thing. Uh, it's a weird thing in a million ways. And I remember when I used to get high, I would watch every addiction show mm. and I would get high and I would root for the addict to relapse. I would, ne- oh, I would always, you know, you always, you want, you want to see wow. them use and you want to see them cop and you, cause you're copping, you're like right. pausing the show and you run out to cop and you come back and you're like, all right, Steven Adler, what are you going to do now? Wow. You know? And it was very much like that yeah. or, or with like a intervention, you know, like what do you think about intervention? I love intervention. That was great. It's, it, it's uh, you know, those are all those. I work with all those interventionists. They're all great. And how's Jeff Van Vandersplansen? What's his name? Jeff Vander. I love that guy. Is the interventionist? Jeff, yeah, Jeff Van something. I, they're they're all Vans in his. Yeah, name. they're all quite good. And, and you know, it's it's um, it's a snapshot. It's not the real work, but it's good TV. My favorite is when you go back to a, an old case. And like that's why I thought so uh, sober house was so interesting because yep. we got to see the evolution. Follow up. Yeah, and, and and that's why. Do you ever think about doing any sort of follow up now? And oh yes, way? oh yes. I've gone back repeatedly and said some of the people there. There's some that you should have casted that I told you needed my help and you were afraid to do. And I, I got in these crazy arguments with VH1. They go, oh, oh no, no, this person's suicidal. You can't do it. I go, I I decide who I can treat. You your idiot psychologist. They're crappy tests. No. I decide. I can tell you who I can treat. I can't treat. Drug addict suicidal precludes them from treatment. I wouldn't be able to treat anybody if there's some suicidality. I mean, it's just part of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, so there are a few that needed treatment at the time, still need treatment, would love to treat them. There are a few that are still struggling, would love to get them back in, and uh, no one will have it. They don't want to do it. It's expensive. You know, they pay everybody. They pay the celebrities and stuff. And and my argument is, of course you pay them. There, there are disciplines of medicine out there where they pay people to go to treatment. This is the same thing. It's the same discipline. They want to be on TV. They want to get paid. Good. I don't care what their motivation is. Once I get them, I can work with them. Right. And so, they're, and, and, and by the way, on TV, they don't leave. You know, people bolt out of treatment all the time. But when they want to get their paycheck, they, they want to, to get up to, they have to stay. That was great for me because I could, I could work hard on them and know that I could push them hard and they wouldn't leave, which in real life, you can't do that because they leave if you push too hard. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've, I've left. Um, if you could do it, I mean, because it seems like uh, you don't want to do, you don't want to work in a drug treatment anymore. You don't want to own a drug treatment. No, you don't want to do that. I may one day. I may one day, but but I just, I'm interested in doing other things. I'm just, I, I want, I'm still doing a lot of assessment referral stuff and I just don't want to run a program. I, I'm I'm concerned about the whole field of course i mean it's also it. like it's it's like what you said before you're either making way too much money you're, you're, or you're, you're ripping you people off yeah you're either ripping you're people off or, or you're getting or, robbed or you or you there's not money to pay you for your works so you're working for free and e- either or is that that's it's somewhere maybe in one day there'll be a new sort of 
health delivery system or you know what I mean? Maybe we'll have some health reform that will make it viable again, that we can put a good team together and pay people a living wage <laughs> to right. do this work. Right. It's also it is it is like weird to do the actual addiction treatment on TV. Um and you know, I can't even imagine. But, but, but by the way, we gave them hundreds of thousands of dollars of treatment after TV, no, I'm which sure. was a key piece. I always said, I always said, you have to put aside a big budget, and I'll get them the psychiatry and the services and stuff because this is just a very beginning of their treatment. I don't. I know that we're time sensitive here. You yeah, know? we're time yeah. sensitive here. Maybe fifty more minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, if you could, you know, there's all these doctor shows. You know what I mean? Like Dr. Phil. I think Dr. Phil took us off the iTunes charts, by the way. That's a whole other story. Dopey was number one on the self-help iTunes oh, charts wow. following our This American Life. Appearance. Wow, good for you. And, um, and the way I got you on Dopey, because you probably don't pay attention to Twitter. I'm sure it's Susan. Susan, yeah. yeah. I tweeted, yo, Dr. Drew, we're in front of you on Twitter. What's up? Oh, that would get her right yeah. away. So, <laughs> That's something I would not notice. <laughs> She'd be like, huh? What? So, so we were number one yeah. on iTunes self-help charts, and we were number 44 on every podcast mm-hmm. on iTunes because of the This American Life mm-hmm. appearance. So we were in front of Dr. Phil. So I wrote Dr. Phil. Hey, Dr. Phil on Twitter. What up? The next day, we're off the charts, and Dr. Phil is number one. Is it Bob Forrest is certain that there's some media conspiracy against dopey now is that possible uh, I, i'm not a conspiracy guy so no it's just fun i just yeah. like to make fun no i'm i'm the opposite of a conspiracy guy so with guys like dr phil and dr oz and these sort of uh shows with an audience have you ever thought about doing anything like that well remember i was on so so i ended up you know doing a lots of other stuff i had a daytime show on cw which was called life changers right that that came after celebrity rehab and that was a good show. It was good, and we did some good work with that. We, we intervened on a lot of people. Um, didn't quite make it. Things daytime's impossible. Well, I need to I was, sense that, you see, you want to help people too much. Yeah, I listen, think that's your problem with TV. No, 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 well, but I'm willing to let the TV people create what they need to create to do their job and right. capture the eyes. I just need to be able to do my job to do something worthwhile. It's it's what Loveline, that was that original idea in Loveline. I'm going to cr- climb into these nudniks spaceship and talk to people that I shouldn't be talking to and my residency director is going to fire me but I think it's an important thing to do it's how you get through you go where the you go where the you know if you want to get where the a crisis is well you go where the the audience where the people are that need the help if I don't if I don't go there what the hell am I doing so anyway I, I um, did a show in HLN for six years and and you, are you aware of that which one HLN it was a nightly sort of news anchored talk show and that show, we did a couple of episodes where we we built an audience and we filled the audience with all one, I don't want to say point of view, one, one life experience, all transgender, all Muslim, all Trump supporters. Yes, I do all, remember this. Yeah, and that's the show. That I want to do that. That's my new, I'd like to do that. Because uh, I because I, I have an open heart and I don't think we're talking that way I think anymore. That's a really interesting. And, idea. and I want to walk into that whether you're African American or Muslim or, or in, whatever it is. I want I want you. My heart is open. I want you to tell people what you're experiencing and let's let's have at it. Let's talk about it. So were you pitching this idea? Kinda. No one wants to hear it really. What if you did this? What if you have? All one thing and all another thing in the same place. I'm sure that would happen. Us I'm, and them. No, I'm sure that would happen. We 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 actually talked about doing stuff like that. It, it, that those kinds of variations on the theme would inevitably come up. I like the idea though because you become like almost a tourist. 
You know, and I, you, I want to understand people, and I want to heal rift, and I want to heal souls. Whatever you know, whatever's going on now, we just seem like we have a problem of the soul. I really believe we have a spiritual problem in this country, and I want to walk. I want to step into it. I want to help it. I, I want to try to understand it. And that's the that's the new problem. It was HIV and AIDS. It's been drugs and alcohol. Now we got a s- spiritual problem. Well, all, I think all of those problems could be directed to the spiritual. Well, part. it's sort of evolved down to that, hasn't it? You know, because yeah, I, mean, like, I, I would agree with you. That's the answer. I mean, that I never had a, an inkling of spirituality in me, yeah. and I could not stop using drugs. And someone was like, "Well, you better fucking find one." Yeah. And I was like, "I don't really want to," and I kept using. You drugs didn't know what they until, meant, even? Huh? You didn't know what they meant. I'm sure. No, I didn't yeah, know what they meant right. until I lost custody of my kid. Oops. And I, you know, I wasn't shooting dope and I was no, taking pills rarely. Loss, and, loss and novel relationships. Those are the two things that look. When, when they up. said, when, when my, you know, I'm, I'm back with my daughter's mother now. We, we just had a baby. Cool. My life is amazing. Mm. It's like, it's difficult, but it's amazing. Life but I remember difficult. when she found out I was taking benzos, she was like, uh, custody is revoked. You can visit us. Uh, Ooh, good for her. She's been going to Al-Anon the whole time. She's been doing a little work. She's a or a therapist or something. Yeah, she's a social worker. Oh, my God. Yeah. Good for her. She's an MSW. She's oh, like, well, that's why one of the reasons you're well. Yeah, I know. Because it's, it's other people that heal. We don't, we don't heal on our own. And I, and I walked into AA, and they were like, um, oh my God, we want I, you to come that's back. such a vivid part of your story for me that I did not know. And you should explore that a little bit. What's that? For, for the dopey nation, as, as, as an observer, the piece you just told me about her, whatever she did with her codependency and her knowledge base as a social worker, crucial in you getting, not dying. Well, her crucial. boundary, yeah. Whatever, what, I don't know her, I don't know what happened to her, but I knew immediately there was somebody. And then when you tell me her whole story, I'm like, oh, that's fast, that is fascinating. I want to hear her story now. It's the concert of her and, and our daughter, you know what I mean? Like, and like, I'm just like... I had to do it. I because ha- yeah. me and her weren't necessarily getting back together. I, you don't know how how clear I am and what I see here. I I am so vivid that it's other humans that heal. It's, we need each other to breathe. We need each other to make meaning. We need each other to have a good life. We need each other to recover. We need each other to see the shithole we're in. We can't have perspective on our own, especially when you're strung out on drugs. I never would have imagined though, like. Uh, to have a family, to have a partner that would do that, mm. you know, and also to be held accountable and also to be the person yeah. who, like, somebody asked me, well, what are you going to do today? And I said, well, ask Linda, you know, like, where, you know, how are you going to do this? Just ask Linda, because I can tell you something, but if I tell you, it's not going to be the right. way it's supposed to be. And right. I never expected to be that person because I was just a defiant child my whole life and now i'm an acquiescing sort of husband type of person child husband yeah. child child exactly. husband exactly <laughs> no you're not a child anymore you know what i mean yeah you know what I mean. i'm being funny now question yeah um if if you know we, we covered a bunch of stuff and i wanted to hear when you were in college yeah what year was it 76 to 80 okay we're talking about a very 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 party down time yeah now were you and you 
I, one thing, I, when I was reading my research on you, I saw you uh, sing the national anthem at a Dodgers game. Yeah, yeah. That was those, operatically. Right. So those are those two years I was goofing around, a year and a half I was goofing around. I started getting into music and singing. And then during medical school residency, I just kept training. I just, I just it was my sort of avocation. Singing. Opera training. Yeah, I had a coach. I had, I had a teacher. Do you sing now? I get sold to charities and do to uh, arias and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I love to sing. I love, I'm, I'm good. I am losing it though. I must say that I was going to bring my guitar up, and I was. I'm not sure guitar is adequate, uh, quite adequate to the kind of stuff I sing. But I should have hired but, a harpist. A piano, piano, and my son's a my son's a real musician. So I've sort of he is the real deal, and so I sort of backed off and let him be our family musician. Did you ever play with him? Uh, he trains me up, you know, when I'm going to do a national anthem or something. That's awesome. He's a coach, yeah. Now, the question was going to be, when you were exploring your artistic side, yeah. did you bump up against the counterculture of college and artist stuff? Like, were you? was there ever a stoner moment? Was there ever a acid moment? In no, I never did, never did hallucinogens, and now I'm even more frightened of them. Um, though, if I had a terminal illness, I would take them. Oh, hang on, I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> Bless you. <coughs> Bless you. Sorry, um, but I did smoke pot in college for a couple times, and uh, I, I'm concerned. When I think about my history, I started having panic attacks not long after I was exposed to pot a few times, and I, I lived on a stoner floor in my freshman year. And they were all like, well, you don't like pot because you don't know how to do it. You don't smoke it enough. So I smoked one week straight. To, at the at the behest of my peers, who said that it, once I figure out how to do it, then I'll know how great because they they were drug addicts and they loved it yeah. and they couldn't imagine somebody not loving it. And um, at the end of the week, I couldn't do my calculus. It freaked me the hell out. I'm it just like, wasn't. Oh no, I, I I liked it less, and I couldn't I couldn't. My working memory was affected. I couldn't abstract in my head while I was working on my math problems. I'm like, oh, I've damaged. I've ruined myself. That was it for me. More important question. Yeah. And we'll close it with and, and I did, But I did party down a bit in medical school the first year or so, first year or two. Anything crazy? Uh, meh. Cocaine, pot, meh. Cocaine, alcohol, a little bit, but nothing. And you still... I was a drug... I am a, a ultra uber crazy lightweight. So so for me to do anything, I, I just feel terrible. I, I just feel awful afterwards. And once I got my license, everyone knew no illegal anything around me. Right. Period. End of story. That was Chris's big concern about Dopey and getting his license. That that's why we had we started anonymously because I didn't want anyone to Google my last name that was affiliated with my no, daughter. Yeah. And Chris was worried that it would destroy his ability to get a license. He and I talked about that, if you remember. Yeah. And, and I thought he should just be. He, it makes it's an asset that he can use. His they may ask him to may have asked him to do certain things to maintain his sobriety and prove it, but. It's an asset. Right. Well, that ship sailed anyway. Uh, um, now, this is going to be... I can't believe I'm squeezing this as the last question because okay. I really was wanted to hear your take on it. We talked about it a little bit on, on your podcast, the idea of people who are in recovery that use. You know, you have like somebody who's a heroin addict, but they drink and they smoke weed and they yeah. say they're in recovery. Right. Like, is there a, a, a doctor's opinion about that sort of thing? Well, I am in a severe minority... Uh, I know what happens to those cases. It doesn't go well. Uh, something bad always happens. Uh, it doesn't always lead to a heroin relapse, though it typically does. Something bad always happens when an addict is using. 
uh, I would look at Anthony Bourdain. He was a heroin addict who was drinking. And smoking tons of weed. Right. So yeah. something bad happens. Now, if you're using cannabis as a replacement therapy, and it's a physician-managed replacement where you're doing it in a systematic way, and then somebody's objectively evaluating you and monitoring it and then trying to get you off it, that's different than somebody's just smoking pot and drinking. That, that That's a drug addict who is lying to themselves, lying to their peers. And one of the things about recovery is you can't lie. You have to be, you have to have a simple life. You have to have rigorous honesty. Now, if you come to meetings and go, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a ton out of the fellowship. I'm sorry. I'm still drinking and, and using pot. You know what they would say? You know what the, the room would say to him? That person keep coming back. So that's a very different thing. Different thing. I am interested in abstinence. That's what interests me. That's where I've seen these miracles happen to people like you. Well, and so I, that I, interests me. And, and I'm not I, interested in chronically ill. I'm just not. Abstinence is is a. I mean, I always. It's not for love, everybody. It's not for everybody. It's not possible for everybody. I understand that. But I, it's about selecting the right patient, and my profession has not figured that out yet. I have so many people that listen to this. So by show. the way, it's one of the reasons I don't want to do the work. Because it's too muddy, it's too unclear, it's too, and you can get in a ton of trouble not doing replacement therapy. Right. If somebody dies trying to get so you know real sober, it's on the doctor. Right. And well, that's, that's unfair. That's it's a, people. A lot of people came out of the woodwork after Chris died. If he had only been medicated, oh, see. if he had, it's like, dude, if Chris had been medicated, he would have done the same fucking thing. Right. Waiting, you know? we wouldn't have had all that glorious time in between. Right. He would not have like. There's a weird philosophy now that's emerging. That if you take Suboxone, it will change your brain over a couple of years, so you won't want heroin anymore. Why would people say that though? I, 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 bad research. Like I have, I have people, listeners who are becoming friends, and and uh, you know, yeah. people who I, I care about, yeah. and uh, they're on Suboxone for so long. Yeah, good for them, and it's they, working, right? I don't know because they wish they were off of it. Oh, magically! And, and well, that's that's every, that's what I interact with all the time because they know I couldn't take that and function the way I want to function. The illness is in the bank. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's or the check is in the mail. The illness. Let, let's is e- in let's the mail. even say that it's not activating the disease the way I'm smoking pot and drinking would because the, they're following directions. They're on lowest possible dose. They can barely tell they're on it. Barely. They don't want to do that anymore. They want to fully experience themselves again. And you can't do that on opiates of any stripe. You can't. So what do you do? You're three years in on Suboxone. You've lowered your dose to... And also, I feel like the lowest dose isn't low enough. Like the, like the, the, the doctor's you, like, I'm going to crush up the thing and yeah, give you a grain. I know. Like, why isn't there a lower dose? Why isn't there uh, it's, it's a oh. good question because when you go from one milligram to zero, you still feel withdrawal. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, there should be tiny tapers. It's a really interesting question. I've never even thought about that because uh, I usually just tell people to cold turkey it and they have two miserable weeks. It's worse than heroin. Two weeks, yep. you're saying. Two weeks and two, and after two weeks you start going through the post acute withdrawal exactly and but so, I would say that I would argue that post acute withdrawal is not that bad the, the main problem with suboxone is the acute withdrawal and what about suboxone withdrawal compared to methadone withdrawal oh methadone's way worse okay no comparison because I came off I was on methadone for six it's amazing years. it's amazing it's a miracle you know most oh. people don't ever get off methadone oh yeah I, I had to get off methadone because uh, my mom was dying and I was in L A the only way I see people get off methadone like. You know, but for the grace of God, is they go on heroin for a while. That's right. I, I went on heroin for a few days, yeah. and then I checked into some public detox in Los Angeles, and then I moved to Vermont. It's lucky. Wow, well, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And Dr. Drew, I, I cannot help but uh, 
be incredibly grateful for our relationship. Yeah, it's fun. For you coming on the show. For Anytime. Me on You've yours. been on mine. Yeah, we, 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 we're fully supportive. There's a reason we're fully supportive. I told you it's a good thing. It's a good, honest discussion about the human experience. Oh, I love that. And yeah. thank you for having me over. It's always a joy to see you. You as well, man. Thanks, man. So thank you, Dr. Drew. It's always a total treat to have uh, Dr. Drew on Dopey, and it's really nice to go up to his apartment. But now I am back on Long Island in the attic, and uh, I want to read you guys an email I got. It's a very morbid question. This guy's name is Joe. He says, Dave, hope all is well behind the scenes. I have a morbid question, which he says morned, but I'm assuming he means morbid question, which I hope you are okay with me asking. If you relapsed and tragically died, how do you think the Dopey Nation would find out? Would we just refresh the feed to no avail? Would Alan record a podcast? The Chris episode was so heavy, it just made me wonder. Keep up the great work, Joe. Uh, It's a sad question, Joe. Uh, I'm not planning on relapsing um, and dying like that, but I think that if something went terribly wrong, uh, I bet Linda would post about it on Dopey or in the Dopey Nation. So uh, if you guys aren't in the Dopey Nation Facebook group, you should join just in case something terrible happens to me. But I do not think anything terrible happened is anything terrible is going to happen to me anytime soon. Uh, I feel very strong in my recovery and I feel really good in my sobriety. And I used to love to get high. You know, I don't think I talk about how much I used to love to get high so much. I also never talk about how much, um, if I could use without the consequences of using, I would probably keep using. You know, if, if I could get high all the time and not have any consequences, I probably would have stayed getting high. But I couldn't get high and have a good life, so I stopped and I discovered that I could have an even better life without using. I'm going to find a, another email. Or actually, I'll play a voicemail. Hold on. Let's play a voicemail. It's from Cal, and Cal says that he loves Dopey. He says, hey, Dave, big fan of the pod. If you do decide you like the content but don't like the quality slash length, just let me know and I can edit it accordingly and resend. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm 13 months clean off dope, and although I'm not working a program or steps, the podcast has been a great part of my healing process and has helped me stay off dope. And for that, I thank you. All the best. Oh, Clay, not Cal. Clay. So here is Clay. Dave, Dopey Nation, what's up? It's Clay in Delaware. Checking in, dropping a dopey story for you. Um, this story came... Like 2015, 2016, um, I was already well into an opiate addiction. Um, I had developed, I had just crossed into a heroin addiction at this point, and I had managed to graduate college. And I was waiting tables, working as a groundskeeper in the mornings, and just trying to float by. I was saving money to go on a trip. I went to a trip to. Uh, Central America and a backpacking trip and so I was saving money and so this is where the story starts is like I'm less than two weeks from leaving for this trip and I'm waiting tables working two jobs just trying to save money put away while also managing a newfound heroin addiction and so I'm out last two weeks before I go I want to hang out with some friends I'm out one night in in the city in Wilmington and I'm outside having smoking a cigarette and I find $300 cash on the ground. I mean, you find a $5 bill, a dollar, cost some loose change, you know, it's no, but this was $300 
cash and three $100 bills on the ground. So naturally, I just scooped that shit up thinking I just fucking hit the junky fucking mother load and go back inside. And like my mind is like immediately I can't even be with my friends anymore. My mind is like on let's cop, let's cop because I was trying, like I said, I was trying to save money. And so I wasn't. But this is this is just found money, you know, so this wasn't going towards my trip budget or anything. And so I was like, I'm going to get high with this money. And so once the thought pops in your head, anyone who fucking has gotten high knows that you your mission does not stop until you get high. And so I'm with friends, texting dealers, making phone calls, going off to the bathroom, trying to get in. I had a few different connects in that time. I get all my connects were in Philly and I'm in Wilmington trying to piece together a way to get high. No one's answering my calls. No one's answering my text messages or everyone's out. And I'm like already in get high mode. And so once I'm in get high mode, there's like, it's very, like, I will sit at the fucking block that the dealer tells me to sit for hours, like just waiting for him, you know, just cause if I'm in get high mode, I've just, I'm just not, nothing's going to stop until I can eventually get some, get high, get what I, get what I want. And so no one's answering me. And so eventually I just say, fuck it. I'm just going to drive the streets of Wilmington. I've never copped dope or drugs or anything in Wilmington before. I think the chances of me copping dope in Wilmington are pretty high because it's a pretty shitty city. And, but I had no idea how. And so my first instinct was just go. It's pretty late at night. It's like, oh, my, the bar closed at 1 a.m. in Delaware. The, it's probably getting close to around there. It's probably like midnight. And so I just go to the first gas station that I find. And I ask the first homeless guy where I find some dope. And of course, for the, literally the first homeless person I, I ask, um, no, says he knows exactly where to get dope and, um, takes me, uh, I get him in my car, drive him to the spot. And he only agrees to get me dope if I get him some crack. Um, so I'm like, yep, let me get the dope first. He goes out, goes, takes my money, goes around the corner, comes back with some, you know, with some heroin. And then I give him, break him off some money. We go to the crack spot, get the crack. I'm like, okay, well you have needles. Cause it's fucking mind you, it's midnight. And so I don't have any needles and that's, I'm I, IV. I, I don't, I had already graduated to IV at that point, And so I needed a needle and he's like, I got needles back in my crib, man. We got to go to, we're going to go to my crib. And so I go back to his house. I guess his mom was a diabetic or something. So we had fresh needles at the house, but these were fucking huge gauge. I forget how the gauge go. It's like, I think it's like the lower the number, the bigger the hole is. And then I think these must, this motherfucker had to be like an eight gauge or 12 gauge, like, like this shit was so fucking big, dude. Like I, like I just still remember sticking that needle in my arm, and it was so fucking big, and it just let a huge r- ripple up. Once I pulled it, I shot the dope up, and fucking terrible part of the story wasn't even fucking heroin. So I'm shooting up fake dope, and I didn't even realize that time. So I fucking pull that needle out, a huge drip of blood comes down my arm. I immediately start bleeding like crazy, like way more than you would have with a traditional needle. I'm freaking out and it's not even fucking heroin. And of course this guy's like, I'm in this dude's house now. He's fucking off smoking his crack. I had just shot up this dope and it's not even fucking real dope. And so I'm like, fuck dude. I'm like, and that's, I mean, I don't want to start. Like, I'm just that type of person that I don't want to fucking cause a bunch of trouble, especially in this fucking dude's house. I don't fucking know this guy. And so he asked me if the dope's good. I just tell him, yeah, it's, it's fine. But hey, what's up with that crack now? Because that's where my mind goes now that I can't get high on dope and I'm not going to ask him to go get more dope or different dope because he's going to just bring me more fake shit. And so <clears throat> I was like, what's up with that crack? And so I've never crack smoked. I don't even like cocaine. I've never smoked crack in my life. And but for then at that moment, in that point in time, it just seemed like a good idea. And so next thing you know, I'm popped down on the seat with this guy and another buddy of his that we had picked up along the way. 
and I'm smoking crack for the first time. And I smoke fucking quick bowl, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get out of here. I lived fucking back in Pennsylvania at that time. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get in the car and start driving. I get like a quarter of the way home. I'm like, man, I need some more of that shit. I call that guy back up. I say, yo, man, ditch your friend. Let's fucking go get more of that. Let's go get more of that shit. And that turned out to be a fucking all-night crack binge with this guy. And it didn't stop until that $300 was completely gone, plus maybe a little bit more money at that point. And so, yeah, and like I said, I was uh, like less than two weeks from going on to that trip, that backpacking trip. I remember getting on the plane and landing in, in Belize still with a fucking, I can't even bend my elbow from the way that fucking needle, that, that thing of needle was so huge and it bruised my arm up so bad. It, fuck, I couldn't even really bend my elbow right. It still hurt to do it even then. Yeah, it was a fucking crazy time. It took a while for me to get rid of that guy too. He was always texting me trying to, he, he saw me as a cash cow at the end of that thing for sure. So it was tough getting rid of him for a little bit. So yeah, Dave, you said we were lacking on some dopey stories. So I thought I hit you with a pretty, pretty dopey one. Definitely my dopeyest story. I think most of my using was just sad and pathetic for the most part, kind of by myself, kind of like a lot how yours was. I imagine your California days were so Anyways, I love the pod. I've been listening for over a year now. I, I unfortunately came along uh, before Chris, and then I, I too was naive and didn't even see it coming until we sadly lost Chris. And I, I miss him dearly, and just like I'm sure you miss him more than, more than me. But all of us in the Dope Nation miss him, and uh, I'm a huge fan of the pod. So keep going on. You're doing great with just you. Yeah, man. Stay strong to the Dopey Nation. I love all you guys. Dopey Facebook page. I'm on there every now and again. Take care and stay strong, guys. Toodles. All right. Thanks, Clay. That was an awesome Dopey voicemail. I like uh, any voicemail with fake dope and low-gauge needles and crack smoking. Is, uh, it's, uh, it's good for the Dopey podcast to get the Dopey stories. And speaking of the Dopey stories, we have an exciting special guest of the show. She is the Narcan Queen. She has a million other titles. Tracy. Hello. Tracy Halton, how are you? Good, how are you? Welcome back to the show, and congratulations on 21 years. It's amazing. I know, it is amazing and surprising. Yeah, is it surprising 21 years later? Uh, I think when I look at Black Tar Heroin, I think about like the place I was at at that period of time where... I was really starting to think they were just going to pull me out of one of those hotels with no ID. My parents would find out, like, maybe years later that I had died. It's a little surprising. Right. But now it's not as much because, you know, it's been a while. Do you ever, I mean, is this a stupid question, but do you ever think about getting high? I wouldn't say I think about getting high. I would say, well, no, I mean, sometimes I live in a city where I see people using a lot and, uh, well, right outside of the city. And I would say sometimes I think, you know, I see people shooting up, and I was like, damn, that's a really big, that's a big hit. Or, like, there was one guy with a big-ass boulder on the pipe. I was like, that's going to feel really fucking good, you know? That's right, feel right. really good. Then, I mean, in terms of, like, cravings, I would say I've had cravings, like, to drink sometimes because I'm like, oh, that might be good. But then I just think to myself, like, how would this enhance my life in any way? Like, you know, because a lot of people that I was in recovery with years ago, they drink or they smoke pot now or whatever, but I just always think, would this enhance my life in any way? And the answer is pretty much always no. Like, I don't think 
smoking pot or, or drinking alcohol. I mean, some people do that and that works for them. But I mean, for me, I never drank alcohol for the taste. I never, I mean, it was always for the effects. It was never, there was never any like, you know, special thing about it that I liked. It was always, you know, I wanted to get fucked up. Yeah. See, I, I, I loved the taste of weed and I loved getting high on pot. Um, but I don't smoke pot because I, I know that it's not going to enhance my life. You know, it's, I'm going to be addicted to weed, as pathetic as that sounds. If I smoke. No, absolutely. I totally was addicted to weed. I remember thinking, I'm going to start doing these um, pills that people had left over because I was spending so much fucking money on weed. I would just sit there and get just, you know, just annihilated on weed to where I couldn't think straight. And then I switched to, you know, people have little Vicodins or whatever that they had from their parents, and I started taking those, and that seemed a lot cheaper, you know, a couple bucks versus 30 bucks when weed was a lot less potent. Yeah, totally. Um, you ever have dr- – I had this crazy drug dream the other night. I mean I'm – I have like three and a half years, so I don't have 21 years, but I get these crazy dreams out of nowhere. Do you still get dreams or no? I had a dream the other night that I – actually, was it, it was two nights ago. I had a dream that I was in the Tenderloin, and I was living in the Bristol Hotel, which – or not the Bristol. I was living in the Ambassador. So the Ambassador Hotel where I lived there in the 90s, it was also an AIDS hospice, and it's not really a hospice because the coroner would come and pull people out of there because this is when HIV, there was no medication. So I, I moved into this hotel, and I didn't realize at the time that I was in HIV hospice. And so I would, like, go in people's rooms, and there'd be, like, sometimes they'd leave the doors open because it was hot because they had those, like, old floor heaters. And so, like, you could see somebody in a diaper and a hospital bed smoking crack and, like, people high out of their minds, like picking at themselves and they had chaos. I mean, it was, it was something out of, I mean, if you think of like the worst novels that you've read about addiction, it was, it was 10 times worse than that. And I had, I dreamed that I was, I had relapsed and I had to go home to the hotels and like the streets were empty and how lonely it was. And then I had gone to the clinic and I've only been on methadone but i had gone and i was trying to be private pay at the clinic it was like this whole yeah. nightmare scenario because everybody knew me because i had worked in the field and i was trying to get on the clinic and i and then i just ended up leaving and then walking back to my room um i mean i have i have drug dreams sometimes and they're you know they're very very real and then you wake up and you're like Fuck, i'm so lucky yeah no doubt yeah i had a dream the other night that I, and it, all my drug dreams revolve around one of my friends who died over the summer and uh, and my mother who died, you know, uh, I would say uh, 10 years ago. Um, and and I had this dream that uh, I was I was like hiding that I was getting high in front of my mom. And at the same time, like dopey was happening, like somebody in the dopey nation needed methadone. So I went and met up with my friend Todd, who had recently died. And like for some reason, he had become this crazy weightlifter. And we did a ton of dope and he scored me methadone. And I and it was so real. And I was like so scared. You know what I mean? Because in the back of your head, you're like, I'm not supposed to be getting high. I'm sober. And you're like in this fucking drug wasteland. And uh, and then yeah, you wake. Not- yeah. I mean, my dreams always, my nightmares are always me being locked in my parents' house, dope sick, and, like, making sure I'm in the house and my mom doesn't find out, because when I first started using, I used to get high in, in my parents' house, but I'd, like, have to hide in the room so you're, you know, my mom wouldn't, or I'd come home super late, 
and my parents would get up really, really early for work. So I'd come home at like two and I'd be so fucked up. And I, and I would have these dreams where I'd be locked in my parents' house and I wouldn't be able to get out, but I was dope sick, but then I didn't want them to find me. So that's, yeah, I totally relate to that. Yeah, it's crazy. And, uh, and they recently got the toxicology reports on, uh, on both my friends who died and, and both of them had, had fentanyl that killed them. So, I mean, I guess it was fairly obvious, but that's, that's what's getting everybody now. Yes, and the, I mean, that's why we're so, you know, we're trying to push everybody carrying Narcan, everybody understanding. It's not just in the, it's in the cocaine, it's in the, um, they've had more in, like, in Boston a couple months ago, they had more people die from fentanyl and the cocaine than even in the, in the heroin. So, there's a whole, there's a whole nother set of people that are, that potentially wouldn't have died of overdoses that are maybe dying of overdoses now because of the, because of the, you know, the fentanyl and the stimulants. Yeah, it's crazy. And and what how does that work chemically when you put fentanyl in cocaine? Like, what's the point? I think, there, I think it has to do with cross-contamination. I don't believe that people are actually killing. I mean, I've heard everything that it's, you know, population control that they're killing off all the drug users. But I think, you know, in places that I've been, so years and years ago, um, this was going to go along with my Dobie story. I used to sell um, drugs for the low-level Mexican cartel guys. And so... They used to bag up all the drugs all at one time. So it'd be, you know, they'd be cocaine and heroin. It would all be on one table. So I'm assuming that there's some kind of cross-contamination happening. And, it, and if you're a person who doesn't normally use an opioid, you can imagine how small of an amount of fentanyl you would need to potentially... And it's the actual, you know, the exact opposite of what you're, uh, of what you're trying to do Uh chemically like you're trying to go up and then you're going down and i would imagine that you would also start freaking out at the same time that would make your respiration go even faster which would potentially speed up the overdose right but, um, i've only seen a few fentanyl overdoses but usually people are grabbing at their chest because they can't it's like they can't get the air in their lungs they call it wooden chest or rigid chest syndrome and that's it's why the fentanyl that's why the fentanyl benzo mix is so deadly i guess because you're well any kind of benzo and anything mix is really really deadly because it slows you I mean, down like that, slows down your respiration. Yeah, I mean, when, the, when I used to do Narcan trainings in like 2003, long, you know, long ago when dinosaurs walked the earth, the example I used to give was like how you could only have to spend $5 to overdose. So like, let's say you just got out of jail and you get a drink, you get you know, a ball of Royal Gate or taco vodka or cheap vodka, you know, that's a couple bucks. And then you get a Klonopane or a Xanax or something like that. That's a couple bucks. And then you, someone you throw in, you know, somebody gives you a little rinse from their bag. You can overdose and die because it's not just the, it's not just the one you have. You're talking about multiple, multiple central nervous system depressants exactly. at the same time. And so they can all hit you. And depending on if you're doing one orally and then you're injecting one, they can all hit you at the same time. Um, so that's why... When a lot of people take methadone, they're expecting, um, I'm talking about people taking it recreationally, um, they're expecting it to have, you know, the same effect of like another opioid where they have this, you know, instant gratification. But methadone mostly is, you know, today that there's not a lot of euphoria. And so in a lot of cases where they've had, you know, multiple drug intoxication, people don't feel it and so they take something else. And so they, they layer the things on top of each other. Well, methadone is going to stay in your system for a long fucking time. Or if you're taking a clonazin, that's going to stay in your system for a long time. Then you're throwing something else on top of it, um, where you might not even really be feeling it. Your body's going to feel that. Right. 
Well, that makes good sense. So, so try not to take a million drugs at once out there. If you can help it. Well, yeah. If you can help it. I mean, it. we often used to take phenograms, which, you know, is, you know, now the kids are taking, you know, the lean, the promethazine, but phenograms is just promethazine. So we would take the promethazine, which is like, a, you know, to keep people from cancer from puking on themselves and like promethazine and, uh, you know, street methadone, we'd buy methadone and heroin and clonopins. And I used to always see like the older drug addicts and they would try to tell you like how to boost your effects and stuff like that. And now I look at that, I'm like, that was really fucking dangerous. Right, right. <laughs> that was really awful. How did I ever survive that? But I'm sure back then you were grateful to the old timers to tell you how to get it done, right? I was grateful to the old timers to explain to me how to not get HIV. <laughs> that was like the main, like people today are like, well, what, how did you do about hepatitis A and or how did you not get hepatitis C? It's like I had hepatitis C, but they didn't even know what hepatitis C was then. Right. I mean, I've had hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C, and we used to have, you know, um, abscesses was sort of like the main thing you worried about. And, but the main thing was HIV was like, you know, the, the old timer telling me, she explaining me and showing me how to bleach needles effectively and telling me, you know, don't take a syringe from someone and teaching me how to tell if the syringe was used because you might have the same syringe for a month at a time, weeks at a time. I've had one I had for a whole year. And so knowing how to keep that clean as much as humanly possible and keep blood out of it and keep it, um, and keep it from other people who, you know, would steal it or whatever. It was like a whole nother set of things, whole no, a whole nother level. But I definitely have had people sell me used syringes before, and you had to be like, this is, you know, this is used. Like, you had to know to bleach it out. Yeah, that was my big fear when I lived in California, that even if I was buying a syringe that was sealed off the street, I was always nervous about it. Because, like, I had come so from New York. Yeah, exactly. And I had come from New York where I would buy all my syringes in, the, in like, Rite Aid or whatever. And so I'm in California and I'm buying syringes off the street and I was always totally paranoid about it. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, that was a whole other hustle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are you doing to celebrate your, your 21? I'm going to go to Portland with my son. Um, I'm not... I don't, I don't know, like, you know, I used to do, like, get tattooed or have a big party or, or whatever, but uh, I'm just going to go on a, like, a low-key vacation um, to Portland for a couple days. But, I mean, the, to me, the big celebration is, like, being alive and being able to, you know, contribute to other people. I think that's more, more being of service to other people uh, is my whole thing. I think that that's, you know, that's really the gift of recovery, but... Uh, maybe I'll get tattooed later on. Who knows? Yeah, maybe you should Sometimes get a maybe you should, maybe you should get a dopey tattoo. I hear that they're the latest thing. It's the latest craze. Uh, I, have, I have a Narcan tattoo. So yeah, that's, that's pretty swanky. So you're saying no to the dopey tattoo? You're not interested uh, in that. Deferring, I'm deferring judgment until later. I think that's smart. I think that's very smart. But if anybody in the audience is interested in a dopey tattoo, just hit us up. Maybe we can work something out. Um, can you believe the the boom in dopey? Aren't you impressed? The dopey I really boom. I am impressed. I always liked dopey. For some reason, Chris thought that I didn't. It's not that I. It's not that I didn't like it. It was just uh, I'm always critical of everything, so I'm kind of like the friend that tells you things that you don't want to hear. So I would tell him things that he didn't want to hear. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot about dopey not to like. But we, we thought you were too serious for our stupid show, but we were always happy when you came on. So, and well, I'm I still happy. My, my, I mean, 
mean, my story that I was that I told Chris was the story about about a month before I stopped using drugs. I had started using cocaine, and I had never really used cocaine that much. I mean, I had always said, well, I don't really smoke crack, but do you have some? Um, or, you know, it was always like if it was around, I might use it or whatever. So, like, the last month before um, I got so I was selling drugs to these people, and they would give me free cocaine if I brought them back their money on time. So I would bring them back their money on time because then there was more cocaine. So I had barricaded myself in this room. I had did all this cocaine. And then I realized I really, really, really had to go to the bathroom. So this horrible, like, explosion in my guts. And I was too paranoid to leave my room. I had lived in the, I was living in this hotel where the bathrooms were way down the hall. Right. So I ended up going to the bathroom in the sink there. And I hadn't, I hadn't taken shit in like two weeks. And so if you've ever used opioids, you understand what that's like. It's like giving birth. Yeah. In California, they call them king of babies, which really doesn't make any sense because that king of means fuck. But anyway... So I had given birth in the sink there, and I was so I was like, "What am I going to do with this?" And I ended up throwing it out the window. So wow. that was my that was my my dopey story because I was so paranoid I couldn't even leave my room, and I was just my teeth were chattering from cocaine. And the second part of that, I, I was worried I was having a heart attack and I couldn't tell anyone. So I was stuck there for like first shit in the sink, and then I was too paranoid to go down the hall, and then I was too paranoid to tell anybody I was having a heart attack. Uh, and so that was like one of the last. The last story uh, before then, the month before I stopped using. Wow. So needless to say, it was time to pack it up. So when you threw the shit out the window, did you barehand the shit or did you like wrap it in something? How did you deal with that? I had like a paper bag and I took it and I wrapped it, but it was like, it had to, <laughs> it had to have been like eight pounds. Right. And so there was this dude. So people used to, there was this air well that used to run in between the two buildings. And so when the cops would come, you would throw your drugs out the window and you would have to pay this guy who was like, he was like super duper on crack. And you would have to pay him like, hey, how about I give you something to go out there and get my drugs? So then I was thinking, you know, he's going to go out there to get drugs for someone and he's probably just getting shit just raining down on him because he's down in there in the air well. Because, you know, he was always down in there. Or like, Dude, if it rained on him, he was lucky. He's, he'd be lucky he didn't get a crazy concussion. An eight-pound shit to the head could be the end of the, the crack hustler in the alley. That could be the end of that guy. Well, I can tell you, when I left that hotel in handcuffs to go into sobriety, he probably was in my room taking all my stuff before I even hit the processing station. That's, I mean, that's all... Sh- if I was shady, he was ten times shadier than me, so hopefully... He got something out of that whole experience. Besides, besides shit raining on his head, right? That's that is. I think that's a re- I think that's a relatable story, though. It was even worse when I was on methadone. That's like all. That's I thought it was funny when this is the Super Bowl where they had all the constipation commercials or one of those like big sports events last year with like every other. Do you have opioid related constipation? I was like, yes, I totally understand. What that's like. I didn't see now that. They're, now they're selling. They're selling you the drug, and they're selling you the solution. They're selling you the the opioid. They're selling you the constipation medication, and they're selling you the other medication to get off the medication. Well, they have their bases covered, Trace. Are you kidding me? Yeah. But Pretty as much. as always, it's it's a crazy pleasure and an honor to have you on because you do such good uh, for people out there who are struggling. And uh, tell them what to do if they're if they're like, how do they get Narcan? How do they administer Narcan? What what should the Dopey Nation be doing? If you have any questions about where to get Narcan, I'm on Tracy H T R A C E Y H four one five on Instagram, on Twitter. It's my Gmail. You can email me. 
and I'll find a way. I'll either find a local place. We start with local local places that have Narcan, or possibly I could send you Narcan if it's not available someplace close. But we, if you're using drugs in 2019, we really want to encourage everybody to have Narcan and potentially fentanyl test strips, so at least you can test your drugs to see what's in it and then make an informed decision. All right, that that makes good sense to me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Tracy. I love that you're a part of our show, and uh, and I'm really grateful for that. And then congratulations on the 21 years. No joke. Yeah, thanks. Have a great day. You too, Tracy. Thank you. All right, love having Tracy on the show. Congratulations on 21 years. I still love making the show, and uh, I want to thank everybody in the Dopey Nation for doing the stuff you do. Andrew G., he wants a shout-out. He's tired of Cormac getting the shout-out, so I'm going to shout-out Andrew G. and Cormac and everybody out in the Dopey Nation. You guys all know who you are, and uh, thank you guys for making uh, the show good. And Kevin on fucking Twitter, I forgot to play the fucking voicemail. Don't hold it against me. I'll play it soon. And all the Don't Die contingents and everybody else, uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. I just want to leave you guys with a bit of Chopped and Screwed. This I feel like compulsive that I have to play Chopped and Screwed every week. And, and let me know if that's true or not. Would you rather a week without Chopped and Screwed, or wouldn't you rather just get Chopped and Screwed every week? I remember when um, you know, I wasn't using every day, but I would get a little supply of pills, and I kept them on top of my bookshelf. Uh, and I was in pseudo recovery with pills on top of my bookshelf and there was no way I could go a night without taking, you know, a clonopin or a Percocet or whatever I had on top of my bookshelf. And I feel the same way about chopped and screwed. I have all of these little nuggets of, uh, my life, uh, with Chris making dopey and I feel, you know, compelled to play them. This one I think is a lot more friendly than the last one. We call this one chopped and screwed. Episode 5, Laughing with Chris, as opposed to Laughing at Chris. And uh, and somebody in the Dopey Nation, I think it was Dan, sent in a voicemail, which was too long, by the way, Dan. You should send in like a little bit shorter. Seven minutes is the sweet spot. But the first thing he says is that I mispronounced uh, Wista. Wista is the way you say it. Like Wicked Dog Beer with Wista in Glasta. Wista, not Wooster. But I'm not around enough Bostonians these days, so my Boston accent is not great. So thank you, Dan, and and send in a new voicemail. That's the sweet spot. Anyway, here's Chopped and Screwed from our dear friend Wista. Wista? Celebrating our our departed friend, Chris. So before we go, I want to thank Tracy again. Always good to hear you. I want to thank Clay for the voicemail. The great Dr. Drew for uh, having us in his house. I want to thank Firecracker for the super fire intro. Worcester, from Gloucester, wherever you're from, Worcester. Now I'm annoyed at myself that I can't say Worcester right. Um, Like it's Worcestershire, Worcester, Worcester. Fucking, what do you guys know about this Momo thing? Do you guys know about Momo? Momo's this like weird internet hoax that's scaring children. Momo is having uh, my daughter in my bed right now, so I'm going to have to sleep in her bed because she's so fucking scared. Momo's very scary. If you guys have any thoughts about Momo, please uh, drop an email, send in a review. Fucking, you know, stay strong, you guys. Love Dopey. Love you guys. Love the scene. Uh, Keep the good stuff coming. Always send in music. Make some art. Uh, When you guys contribute to Dopey, it makes Dopey a million times better. 
So stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, who we will miss forever. And uh, here's a little chopped and screwed laughing with Chris from Worcester. If anybody out there in the Dopey Nation is good at, like, cutting up audio, uh, why don't you hit us up? We will hand over the Dopey archives to you, and we can you can create a little audio collage. What? You want to do something with those one-liners. So this is like a chopped and screwed episode. So we'll call it the chopped and screwed episode. <laughs> Do you leave the house if you haven't shit? I don't shit in the morning. Squeeze me? <laughs> <laughs> right. How you doing? You feeling your mojo? No. No. No Joe. You seem pretty zened out right now, actually. How are you? I'm good. I'm ready to go. Ready to rip. Ready to run. Ready to rip. Ready to run. You say terrible things about me to me all the time. Yeah, but you know I don't think those things. I don't know anything. I just want to hurt your feelings. Well, exactly. <laughs> You're not getting any of this vape this whole episode. You're in timeout. Introduce the show. Can I please have the vape? Introduce the now show. Now you mentioned it, I have this craving for <laughs> nicotine. Introduce the show. Can I just have the vape no, first? No, I'm going to use it. I'm making a nice little toot off this thing here. Yeah, take a nice fucking toot. You're so fucking annoying. You're trying to be professional, man. You got all these fancy microphones and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll do one more voice. What do you think about that story? I think it's fucking fire. Wicked fire. It's the Wicked Pisser Report. (laughs) All right. um, This is Megan with the Wicked Pisser Report. (laughs) You like that one? I like that one. I like the last one you played. Forever in Debt. Yeah. That one's Forever in Debt. So just play the chorus real quick. Play Forever in Debt. You want me to play a song? Uh, you know what I want you to play? What? Forever and Dead. We've done it twice I on the show. I love that song. I'm not doing it Just play it the verse. Just play one verse. No. And then I'll shut the fuck up, please. I'm asking you, please. I'm a fan. Just listen to it. I'm a fan it. making a request. Just one fucking verse of Forever and Dead. Are you kidding me? Please do it. You want to do a verse of Forever and Dead? No. No? I have a request. What? Why don't you play one verse from Forever and Dead? We she said push don't it. talk about that. Yeah. You to play something? Play one, one verse Forever and Dead. Just one verse. I don't do your weird sugar packet doling out of forever in debt. Just fucking play one verse for me. It's my birthday. It's, it's my birthday. not your birthday. It's my birthday. It's, it's not your birthday. It's my birthday. You want me to play forever in debt? I want you to play a verse of forever in debt. Who was married to Sukiyuki? Don't make stupid jokes. But who was married to her? To who? Suki. I honestly, I swear to God, I don't know her name. I know it's something like that. Yoko. Yoko. Are you serious? Yoko Ono. Holy shit. Isn't Cher just Cher singing the old hits? <laughs> is that a real laugh? Yeah, that was a real laugh. <laughs> that reminds me of a Dude, story. Dude, question my fucking laugh? <laughs> I'm shocked that you didn't make fun of me when Danny from House of Pain was here and I put on the pajamas for him. I know. I was like, fuck it, man. Yeah. Jump around. Do you play dumb with me? I am dumb, Chris. <laughs> you're, pretty, you're pretty honest, though. That's what I love about you. But I, I've had a lot of bravado, and I don't really feel the bravado I've been displaying. Yeah, see? You're an idiot. Wow. <laughs> Words hurt, man. No, you should make an amend to me for offering me drugs when I was sober. It was LSD. And, you, and I could hear your crazy eyes rolling around in your head through the phone. <laughs> ah, motherfucker. You're reading his actual name, and you're saying it over and over. <laughs> You just made me have to do more work. One of the show's executive producers said that he had not been let go. 
Of Mr. course they're denying it. They don't want to get sued. What happened to your voice? There's the vape. It <laughs> <laughs> is sexy. It's like Omar. No. But that's I think that's so fun about this. Is I look forward to doing it with you. It's great. That's that's a big piece of it. If I was doing this on my own, it would have died a long time ago. And we're going to unleash the full power of the Dopey Nation you against You can't unleash anything. The full power of the Dopey Nation. <laughs> Do you hear me? Not yeah. half power. Yeah, maybe the nation, the nation can. The dopey nation can yeah. do anything. Yeah. I've never seen a woman that old that I would like to fuck so bad. But how did they really feel? What, that show. I used to pleasure myself to the scene from True Lies? I used to pause that in order to get my dirty business done. Uh, yeah. yeah, it would just be fucko city. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how many fuckos can you be around all the time? You're one of those fuckos now, by the way. No, no. Tell how nice my dad was. Oh, his dad's really nice. That's all you're going to say? <laughs> if you don't need help... You love this line. Don't call. <laughs> Your slogan, it's whatevs. <laughs> it's whatevs. Yeah, she seemed like she was into it, and I just, I just dropped the ball on that. Really? Yeah, whatever. Why whatever? I don't know. Whatever. You know, I'm, you know I am. Whatevs. No, that I right now, I'm just saying, because nothing's weird. I'm okay with everything, you know? What did you say? Whatever. <laughs> what did you say was weird? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I cannot imagine what it's like in your head. Can I tell you how I picture your brain? I picture your brain like, um... That's great. That's sad. (laughs) When he farts, he, like, leans over, he sticks his butt out. It can't be if we're doing that. He does this little (laughs) smile like he's Jodie Foster. What are you smiling about? Nothing. Because you farted and it stinks? (laughs) It's so bad. (laughs) Jesus Christ. <laughs> I apologize for farting during the ad last time. Six voice memos. And it's all because <laughs> like, You're such six, a disgusting person. I literally got like six voice memos. What I do is I kind of lean to the left and I, I let it out. You know, it's just, you can't hear it. A Desert Rose. What is that? That's his song. A Desert Rose. Okay. Or Fields of Gold. Sing Fields of Gold. One of them, it's like Roxanne. Yes. Roxanne. That's one. And Nightbird. How does it go? It goes, Nightbird. You know the verses? I know all the words. You do? Yeah. Do you really, or is this going to be bad Christian? I... It's like a fish stick, but it's Christian. <laughs> I know flesh and bone. What's wrong with you? You went to the... Uh, by the way, Alexis, you're really, really attractive. I saw your picture. Uh, well, thank you. All right. And you have two kids? I do. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And you're married happily? Very happily, Oh, it's yeah. just good for Chris to I hear was, these things. <laughs> I was just okay. giving her a compliment, dude. It's just, I'm just making sure that he understands the nature of the of the beast here, Alexis. That's all. Do programs work? I was like, program works. I really felt, I really, and then I went on with my day. I went on with my day. I was like, holy shit. You're so fucking stupid. I'm stupid, yes. Did you find it yet? I'm finding it. What, are you trying to get me upset? Or you really think I'm stupid because I played the wrong song? I just want to see if the program's still working. program was working like a charm. It could almost be an outer body experience. Like, all your memories are wrong and you're actually, actually Charles McCullough. <laughs>
fucking if my consequences were enough for me to it's like give me a fucking break and I remember the guy had like long blonde hair and I'd go up and I was a total dickhead I was like you Lance a lot motherfucker like, <laughs> like give me my liberty you are like truly unique it's like the only the only drug that really worked with a psychedelic. It didn't even work. It just turned it off. Antipsychotic. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's really the, 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 the surefire stop. <laughs> that tells me is that there's three hundred nine hundred. What are you saying? Three hundred and ninety thousand nine hundred and seven hundred. <laughs> you're an idiot. People who haven't been a review. No, your logic is so flawed. What's wrong with you? <laughs> your favorite artist. Uh, <laughs> well, Sid Barrett was at one point, but he's defunct. I liked him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> My God hates me. <laughs> But hates you more. My God hates me, but he's rooting for me. Because no. <laughs> I don't know anything about anything besides Dopey. Yeah. That's really, and, and waiting tables. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I know about it. In fact, I think because of your incredible verse yeah. and knowledge of the obscure pharmacopoeia of society, yeah. you know what I call Honest Nick? What? Honest Dick. Good one. Thanks. Like that? With the toodles? You just heard problematic moments. I just heard Chris and Dave, toodles and problematic moment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have any star qualities. You're in my network. I'm, I, I am your network. <laughs> you don't even know what's good. It's like, it's all a mystery That's to you. garbage. That's garbage? Garbage. But you think my sobriety's fragile? I do. Why, because of the NyQuil? Yeah. That's it's bullshit. Fucking bedwetter. Even if you listen to it? Yes. How come you had to pause it to look up the title? Because I was just thinking tragic comic. Everything is horrible and wonderful. It's you're like stupid. Wow. <laughs> is that really the way you want to go with this? <laughs> no, continue. And as I was tanning, I realized I have pissed myself in sobriety. I can't believe you lay down in a tanning bed? Yeah. Did they put a cock in your mouth while you were in the tanning bed, too? Fucking... This uh, town is so white, theater. it's hard to there's, find there's dark a, chocolate. There's, there's, yeah, there's no dark chocolate in 7-Eleven, and there's a fucking fudge shop. <laughs> that yeah. is not a fabrication. They literally did not have any dark chocolate in 7-Eleven, including Hershey's Special Dark. The fucking swag schwill dark chocolate that's in every vending machine in New York City. Should I name some of the bands Eric Clapton was in just for the hell of it? Uh, sure. He was in Cream. I've never heard of it. Like the Wu-Tang song? That's a joke. <laughs> right? That's like a, not a good joke that you're making? Yeah. Here. Hold on. I, you're making me crazy. Um, the, the point is, though, I'm an ungrateful piece of shit. Yeah, but I was, I'm, I've always been a very judgmental jerk. And, and I'm a total pussy. What's my best quality? Your neuroticism. It is? What's my worst quality? Your neuroticism. Thank you. How about the, the, the baby back ribs? That wasn't this episode. That was the last one. Whew, it's nice out there. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful out. It's a nice night. I love New York City. Yeah, let's just call it a night. Let's just call it early? Yeah. Yeah, I'll just I'll just play your thing on loop until we hit an hour. I'll just keep playing uh, I want to be good so bad Drop us a review on iTunes I straight cream my pants When you guys do that I straight love it Straight cream in your pants Straight cream in pants <laughs> <laughs> Alright Daniel Alright man Later 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 Toodles Oh, oh my god <laughs> Toodles Jesus Christ 
It's all I ever had. 